Welcome to episode six of North of the Shire, and I am here once again with Andrew. And how are you doing, sir? Doing all right. Doing all right. No complaints. How about yourself? I'm good. So you survived your surgery? I survived the surgery. It was a doozy. I uh, <laughs> yeah. You you they knock you out, which was awesome, right? Because you don't feel anything. You're sitting there, like, I don't know if you've ever had surgery before, like, on an actual operating table. And this is my first time. So they sort of walk you, they walk you in. Like, it's not even gurneyed in. You're walked into yeah. this room. And, like, the operating table itself is nothing like, one of the, like, in the TV. It's, like, yeah. the thinnest piece, uh, thinnest table that you sit on. You're, like, you're yeah. barely, like, if you lean left or right, you're falling off, Right. And they strap you in, and I'm just like, this is so weird. And then they, the guy's just like, all right, ready for the anesthetic. And just like, before you know it, you're like, what's happening? And you're just, you're done. You're out. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you wake up. Everything is good to go. And uh, So what, what was your surgery? Because I, I don't think our, our listeners really know what your surgery was. Well, I, I'm sure we have many dedicated listeners who are extremely concerned about me. <laughs> Uh, but little do they know, I have had a deviated septum, uh, which means my nose was uh, crooked and uh, from birth, actually. And what's happened is over time, it's gotten worse and worse to the point where it's actually blocked or almost blocked one of my nostrils. You have a really hard time breathing. And so I'm noticing that really uh, a lot over the last probably year. And you probably have noticed me yawn a lot. Uh, and that's in large part because I just can't get enough oxygen. And, and so I said, you know, why not have the surgery? It's totally an elective and covered by OHIP and all that jazz. And I went through it. Uh, the operation was a success. The recovery sucked. There was no pain, really. Um, it was mostly just discomfort. And, uh, you know, I tell you right now, that first time... They pulled out, pulled it out, and she said, "Take a deep breath." And I did, and I'm like, "Oh, this is what it feels like to be normal." It's like this is what it's like <laughs> to get oxygen. Exactly. I was like, "Oh my god, this is amazing." <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, yes, I have had surgery uh, a few times, but we won't get into that. I think we've had enough of reefing and uh, all that kind of stuff for yes. for one episode. But I also had something shoved up my nose uh, oh. recently because I actually went and got a COVID test. Oh, um, how was so that? that was, that was an experience. Yeah, I've had so that a couple we, times. We, yeah, mm. we had... Uh, we actually had um, someone test positive at my work with it, mm-hmm. uh, and my work is like extremely disciplined with our COVID procedures. Um, I have not been working from home. I've been working. Uh, I work in a factory, so I've been working. Um, aside from like the first seven weeks, I think I've been mm-hmm. at work. Um, but anyway, yeah. So just playing it safe. Went and got tested, and it was negative. So all's Con- well. Congratulations for failing. That's a good. Yeah. That's a good thing it's to one fail. One test, I was very happy to fail. <laughs> <laughs> it's very true. I've had that test twice because before you have a surgery, actually in Ontario, you have to be tested negative for COVID one week before the surgery, and you have to self isolate for that full week. Yeah, there's a lot of situations now where you you have to be tested negative. So uh, and yeah, no, you know, I had the opportunity of standing in those lineups. 
And I was like, that's not happening. I'm going to a drive through COVID test. That, yeah, no. yeah. now it's all different now. And we're, we haven't even started talking about The Hobbit. Oh, my God. Yeah, no. Or Middle Earth. But uh, it, now it's all by appointment only. That's so, right. So, like, for me, I called, made an appointment, went over. Nobody there, got the test, was home all within 45 minutes. Wow. It was uh, the easiest thing ever. I called, made an appointment. There was a, a lineup 55 cars long, took me an hour and a half just to get through the test, got back two and a half hours later. <laughs> <laughs> well, who knows? Every day is different, right? Well, so. that, that's also me living in Toronto versus you living in the boonies. Yeah, true, I guess. <laughs> Uh, okay, let's move on from all of these uh, surgeries and, and COVID. Um, I got to tell you one thing. So la- last time, well, not last episode, which was Chris and I, but the one before that, and I was I was talking about uh, my experiences playing chess when I was a, a mm. young man, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't know how I got onto the topic. I was talking with my wife Angel about it and uh you know Angel she's mm-hmm. got a very very dry <laughs> sense of humor <laughs> so she I was telling her about that and she's like oh great uh so now everyone knows you're a chess nerd too it's not like it was enough they know you're a Lord of the Rings nerd <laughs> you know what you when you're labeled a nerd it doesn't matter if you're a nerd of 50 things or a nerd of two things yeah, you're a nerd yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, right, like running the games club for all these years, Chris, Chris and I run mm-hmm. uh, here in town, and uh, she would always, always refer to me as King of the Nerds. <laughs> how's, the, how's the King of the Nerds doing? <laughs> My- uh, anyway, um, I don't know if you heard, I'm sure you did, but, uh, and this is somewhat uh, Middle Earth related. Uh, Sean Connery passed away on October 31st. I heard, I heard. Quite yeah, sad. So, so Middle Earth related uh, because he actually turned down the part of Gandalf in Lord of the Rings. Uh, yeah, um, he would have done a good job, I think, but I, I just can't picture anyone but Sir Ian McKellen in the role. I can't either, yeah. And, um, I, like, I, after he passed away and, uh, like, I was looking that up again because I know I, I, I did read about that previously. Uh, and, and his um, reason for turning it down was simply that he didn't understand the role. Yeah. Uh, you know, the only person I'm thinking of that would have done an equal to or better job than Sir Ian McKellen was, uh, was Sir Christopher Lee. He, he's Sir knighted, correct? Lee. Or not, I don't recall. Uh, I'm not sure on that, honestly. Okay. But yeah, he would have done, I think he would have done as good, if not a better job. And I'm pretty sure, and he actually did uh, audition for the role, and they gave him Saruman instead. I recall that. Right on. Well, that, that's that's a certainly a good role for him, because he did, he did great in that role. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, brutal financial decision for uh, old Sean Connery. Oh yeah. Um, they uh, they had offered him thirty million dollars, really? and then when he when he turned it down, they offered him thirty million plus fifteen percent of the box office. Fifteen percent of the box office. Fifteen. Oh one my five. gosh! Yeah. He I think been... I think it was supposed to end up being like something around four hundred and something million. He would have got. 
Wow. Uh, and instead, his last movie, which was made in 2003, was The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Gentlemen. which was not a very extraordinary movie. It was not. The comic books that it's based off of are actually quite good. I feel like most, most things uh, back in those days... Uh, producers and, and, and directors didn't really have a good grasp on how you can um, make a good superhero movie like they do now with the Marvel movies. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, no big swing and a miss. It was on okay. That. Like it's watchable. It, I, it, I don't it, mind it's, it. But. It's a fun five out of six out of ten. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, yeah that's yeah. about it. It's it's kind of a horrible movie to end your career on for someone like him though. So yes. anyways, we'll we'll stick on Sean just for one one last bit. Favorite Sean Connery movie. Oh jeez, you're gonna make me do this. Favorite Sean Connery movie. Um, I gotta go with. Uh, oh, he's got so many good ones. But the one that's sort of like sticking out repeatedly in my head, I gotta go with uh, the Last Crusade. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Indiana Jones, yeah, yeah. It's a good one. 1989. Now, yeah. don't get me wrong. I think Sean Connery was the best Bond. Okay? And I can't pick a Bond movie of them. He, I loved all of his Bond movies. To me, James Bond is Sean Connery. There isn't... He was definitely good as... He was definitely good as Bond, for sure. Um, and so probably, what was your favorite? Uh, my favorite uh, Sean Connery movie, which I saw in the theater with my dad in 1975, mm-hmm. which is probably one of his lesser-known movies, is The Wind and the Lion. The Wind and the Lion. Yes, where he plays Muli Ahmed Mohammed Raisuli, the magnificent Lord of the Rifts, Sultan to the Berbers. And you can tell my, my young 13-year-old self memorized that back when I was... I, I was going to say, are that. you reading that off yeah. of something? Oh, I love that movie. Uh, it's pretty cornball, uh, but it's it's pure sentimental value. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a great adventure movie. Candace Bergen at her most beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, it's a really good adventure movie. If you haven't seen it, you got to mm-hmm. see it. Um, and you've seen you've seen his his days of Highlander. I take it. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, he God. he had tons of good movies. Like honestly, Highlander is he was good in Highlander. I, I love Highlander, but you know, uh, not a fantastic movie. It's good. Uh, certainly, it's you know, it's a genre movie for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, he he had a lot of really good movies in the seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, Wind in the Lion, nineteen seventy five. Man who would be king, mm-hmm. uh, fantastic. And another one I really like, Robin and Marion, a really different take on Robin Hood legend. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. That was really good. And then and then you know you got your Untouchables, Indiana Jones, and all the Untouchables, uh, Red October. Yeah, tons of tons oh. of really good stuff. Almost every movie you list from him is just like, yeah, that was amazing. That was amazing. Yeah. Oh he well, he good. made a lot of really horrible movies too. There's he made a lot of bad choices. There's no question about that because he made tons. Of movies, well, that's but. the thing. Like, you can never get all the movies you do right because, like, you're going to be walking into a situation where it's just going to be crap. And, and even if yeah. you do a good job, it's going to be crap. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, well, shall we move on from uh, Mr. Sean Connery? I think so. Rest we in peace. Pay him a good tribute. Rest in peace, Sean, Mr. Yeah. Connery. So uh, we just had, it is, what is the date today? It is November the 12th. 12th, November yes. 12th. So we just had Remembrance Day here we did indeed. yesterday, which was kind of odd for me. It's the first time I can remember not actually being at work because we always do, uh, you know, two minutes of silence mm-hmm. and um, 
Flanders Fields and and mm-hmm. all of that. So it was kind of odd for me to not be at work for for that. So yep. hopefully, hopefully they still did all of that. And the last time I was was there because again I'm working from home is I was at York University and they had the full ceremony with the flag and everything. Um, and so that was that was really done well and done official. I don't think the, the company I work at now would do, have done anything close to that. It would have done probably your standard two minutes of silence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just being able to have that opportunity to stand around, you know, you had a lot of veterans, uh, not of World War II, but just a lot of military veterans in general, sort of there, um, you know, repping um, their university. So. Yeah, that's good. That's yeah. good. Uh, and I know it's like I, I heard that, um, you know, donations are really down this year because, um, you know, we do the poppy thing here and uh, a lot of that kind of stuff just can't happen right now. So I uh, like a, when we do get back into into gaming and tournaments, um, hopefully we'll uh, be back in, you know, some legions or uh, it made me remember something, and that was we played. Uh, well, we've played many tournaments there since, but mm-hmm. I think one of the first times we played, and it was probably the GT 2017, 2018, somewhere mm-hmm. in there. Uh, and we played at the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry Association. Mm-hmm. We've been there a bunch of times now, and the Hamilton um, Hamilton Games Club. I forget their official name. They they meet there on a regular basis. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, it reminded me, though, of, of being there one time, and it would have been just shortly after my dad passed away. He passed away in 2016, age 91. And I remember I was playing a game there with Chris O'Reilly, mm-hmm. longtime member of the OSBGL, great guy. Yep. And I, I had to take a quick bathroom break, and on my way back from the bathroom, I, I like spotted this poster uh, on the wall and I went over to look at this poster and it was an Avril Lancaster poster. Avril Lancaster being a World War II era bomber. Mm-hmm. Also, the plane that my dad flew in during World War II. And mm-hmm. I looked at this poster and, and it listed all of the Avril Lancaster squadrons um, oh, wow. that were in that were in the RAF, the Royal Air Force. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, oh my God that's my dad's squadron right there. And they had my dad's squadron like listed on the poster Mm -hmm. 218 gold coast squadron. And like, I ran back into the room and of course, you know, I was emotional about it because it wasn't that long since my dad had passed and, and I grabbed Chris and I'm pretty sure it was you. And, um, it was George, uh, OHA George. And I got guys, you gotta come and see this, right? Come and see this. And I like dragged all you guys out into the hall and say, like, check out this poster here. And it's like, you see this like fine print down here, like two one eight Gold Coast. That's my dad's squadron. Uh, and you know, so I was like all proud, and you guys were really nice about it. And it's like, oh yeah, yeah, cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was pretty cool because one, you don't expect to see that coming out of the, out of I wouldn't say the bathroom, like being in a, a legion. Hall, yeah. you don't expect yeah, yeah. to see that kind of thing. Well, like for really me, cool. it was it, it was a really unexpected thing to happen at a Middle Earth hobby tournament. Yeah. Uh, and as bizarre as that is, it's probably the fondest memory that I have of of any tournament that I've played at. Yeah, 
I can see yeah, that. for the game. Yeah. So, so anyways, that's my Remembrance Day MESBG story. Oh, that's cool. I like that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, well, anything else? I've been doing any hobbying? What about the miniatures? What about the challenge? What oh, happened? Oh, the challenge. Let me tell you about the challenge. It came, it went, and not a single lick of paint was put to a model. <laughs> oh, my God. Glorious. Really? Yep, not one. Because you see, and I'm going to throw this down for you. Sort of a, a Lemony Snicket series of unfortunate events. I had been off for like the last half of the month, so there's so much more work to do. Oh, right. And yeah, it was just working like 14, 16 hour days. And then right after that was finished, it was my wife's birthday weekend. And well, so, good news. Good news. Yeah. We're not, we're not going to get this entire episode filmed tonight, so mm-hmm. you probably have another week. No. We'll no. catch you again at the end of this episode. And secondly, <laughs> the next time you say, what's in my pocket, is not a painting <laughs> challenge. That is not in my pocket. <laughs> the thing I would like to, to note is the, the one new thing that I've got to my setup is I have a boom arm now, which I'm very excited about. It's elevated my uh, mic off the floor, off the table. So hopefully it's not picking up the sound of the cord that goes to my headphones, which yeah, is it's like super it, annoying. It's like every episode so far, there's <sighs> been some new annoying sound yep. happening that requires editing to try to remove as much of it as possible. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I did some painting as well, too, uh, mostly today. And I've just been I've still been working on my Morgul Knights that mm-hmm. I've had on my table for forever. Oh, nice. And I think I think they've been stalled out on it because I keep looking at all six of them at mm-hmm. once. So what I did was I just picked up two of them and mm-hmm. brought them onto my painting table and I just started working on two of them and I made quite a bit of progress on them. I didn't get them done. Mm-hmm. Um, also was painting one metal Urukai Scout Archer. So ah, uh, I got him almost finished, but did a little bit of, of that mm-hmm. today. But, nice. but that's all pretty well all I've done for the last week for it's it's more than i've gotten done in six months so kudos to you sir kudos to you (laughs) i'll take it i'll take it okay are we good to move on to the main talking topic i think we are All right, so here we are for our main topic, and we are talking about the mental side of the game. Mm. And now that we have you focused your mind on the task at hand and successfully bolstered your mental fortitude with preparation for the game, it's time to actually play the game. Mm-hmm. But even with all that hard work, you still need to prepare your pre-game strategy. And the pre-game strategy is critical to maintaining strength throughout the day. Now, your pre-game strategy sort of, it's four components. The first and the easiest one, it's usually the first of the four, is the mission. And you'll be given this before you even get to the table usually. So they'll usually say, game one, Lords of Battle. Right, and then they'll call out table rankings, or if you're in a bigger event, they'll have it slapped against a wall somewhere. 
And if you've done your pre-visualization, you know, like uh, how would I act in each uh, mission, you kind of, you'll have a suite of opening strategies ready for this particular type of mission. And then as you walk up to the table, the next thing you'll see, especially if you're a fast walker and you beat your opponent there, is you'll see the table itself and the terrain that's sitting on it. And the table and the terrain present also impact your choices. Tables with lots of terrain allow for more, more diverse, diverse strategies, whereas tables with sparser terrain create more hard counter situations, especially when it comes to playing against an army that has more shooting or you have more shooting than your, than your opponent. And that third thing is when your opponent walks up and they're carrying their tray of little, uh, little toy soldiers and you get to see their army firsthand. And this is generally speaking that moment where you lean across the table and you look it over like you're looking over your presents on Christmas Day and you're thinking, well, what do we got here? What do we got here? Yeah, what do you got? What do you got? Who's your leader? <laughs> Who's your leader? You're just picking his brain before they even get a chance to put their stuff down. And, you know, when you see your opponent's army, you only need to adapt your strategy to combat that army of a particular type. Because what may end up happening is that you'll see your opponent's army and think to yourself, I might be in a losing proposition based on this table and the, the mission and the army. Or you might say to yourself, it's time to get me some, get me a 12-0 victory because I'm about to lay the smash down. <laughs> and the last part is the player. And I dare say... This is probably the most important of the four. You know, and as the saying goes in poker, you're not playing your hand, but the player across from you. Okay? And your opponent and their skill will influence what you can do. A poorly skilled opponent will allow you to try riskier strategies, which in turn yield greater rewards, i.e. that max victory points. Whereas a more skilled opponent will warrant a more conservative approach and biding your time until they make a mistake. So now, I have an example I'd like to bring out from the last TGX. Um, that's our pretty much our one of our premier events. Um, one of the big ones. It's here, one yeah. of the big ones in Canada, or sorry, actually Ontario. And it's the only event in Ontario where they give out those fancy ring uh, trophies that Games Workshop sponsors, which is yep. super cool. And last TGX, which was, I think, last June, July... I come up in game one, and I'm looking at it, and I've got my, I'll, I'll say it first, I've got my army in my hand, and it's uh, my, my Gondor army, which is about mid-30s model count, and it's a heavy hero list. So you've got your Aragorn King Alisar, your Huron the Tall, your Faramir, your Boromir of the Fellowship, your Galadriel Lady of Light. Yes, this was a yellow fellowship, because I abused the rules of allies. This, is, does, this army doesn't work anymore, it's now Red Alliance. Um, and I had, you know, three or four knights of uh, Gondor, maybe ten rangers of Gondor, and then just sort of a smattering of warriors in Minas Tirith. Just to sort of sounds competitive. It sounds really competitive <laughs> because it was because Minas Tirith, their warriors are really just roadblocks. They're that D six yeah. shielding roadblock, and your heroes do all the damage. And so, game one was called Lords of Battle. And I thought to myself, well, I've got Galadriel, Lady of Light, so that's blinding light. And I've got Rangers, so I've got about 10 of them, 10 to 12 of them. So that means I'm going to clump up, sit there and shoot, get some early kills, and force my opponent to come to me. That way, I can sort of control the tempo of the game. Force them to charge me, and then my heroes can smash them. So that was kind of my opening strategy. And Sounds that, like a good strategy. 
Oh, I think so. It was my, that's the, the idea I had going. And so I walk up to the table, and there is a rocky table. And so the, you know those old single-tier, double-tier hills with a little mm-hmm. bit of uh, gravel, and they're all the, the sides are cut out with the, the styrofoam wire cutter. Uh, and what it's done is it's laid out in such a way that there's a couple choke points, maybe two, three inches from my actual deployment zone. I thought, okay, perfect. I'll sort of, uh, so if my opponent doesn't have shooting, I'll split my force, block both choke points, or maybe throw my entire infantry side to one choke point and then throw all my heroes into the second choke point and then just sort of do a refuse right flank and sweep right. my opponent, hammer anvil style. Yeah. And then it also allows me to sort of control the game if my opponent has um, a high model count army. I said, okay, that's my, that's my strategy when I saw the train. And then I saw my opponent's army. And there was Mr. Andrew, to which many will refer to him as the captain. And he's walking up and he's carrying his army tray. And I'm looking over, peeking over and saying, what do we got here? Because I know Andrew, and I know him to be... Uh, is, this, is this Captain Barbosa? This is Captain Barbosa, which is why they call him Captain. And he was given that nickname Captain Barbosa from Chris O'Reilly, um, which I'm sure Chris will have a good shout-out there for. And he's walking up, and I, I see Andrew as... He's in a four-game four tournament. He's a three-in-one kind of player, you know? And so that's concerning to me because I know that he's a guy who knows his stuff, and if he's brought a list he's very practiced with, I could be in trouble. And so yeah, he walk- he's a good player. He's, a, he's good a good player. And so he walks up with his Mordor list, and we're in the new edition. And he's got his two ring wraiths. He's got the Witch King. He's got Kamal. He's got Shelob. He's got a um, a wackadoodle of uh, Moran and orcs, and um, I think Cardouche was in there as well. And I said, you know, last edition, that's a nasty, nasty list. This edition, you know, ring wraiths can be challenging, but they took a huge amount of nerves. But still, you don't want to you don't want to overestimate uh, your skills on that. And so I looked at it and I immediately thought he's got a way higher model count army than I do. I think he had somewhere in the region of fifty models, and I'm like, there's no way I can sort of try to plug both of those gaps and deal with wraiths who love to jump lines and attack weaker targets from behind. They just It's not a plan that works. Um, and so I said, okay, what I'll do... And the other thing I saw was Shelob. Shelob loves to just run over yeah. terrain and charge you. And I'm like... Yeah, or, or compel that model. Now, Shelob, sick him. Exactly. So I'm like, <laughs> yeah. no, 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 no. Yeah. So what I said to myself, you know what? I see his army. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to plug the gaps initially and I'll shoot at him because again I'm trying to get a couple wounds and then I'll see if I can bait his army forward and then I'll pull back and sort of condense my force and and sort of limit his rates from getting a lot of options and then I said hey Andrew I like that Mordor force there how long have you been playing that for and he goes oh I just started playing it maybe a week ago I thought to myself oh it's now, excellent. Excellent. Because <laughs> wraiths, no matter, even though they've had a lot of nerfs to them, wraiths do have a bit of a skill cap to them. Once you figure it out, you can be quite deadly with wraiths, especially against infantry. But a week 
of playing the army doesn't sort of net you um, that time. Full to understanding. Learn. Exactly. Yeah, you don't get a full understanding with like a and short period of time. The problem with Andrew is that all last edition I played wraiths, so I know how to play them. I know how to play against them inside and out. I said, okay, beautiful. That's what I like to see. And I said, I'm going to send, now that I know all of these components, I've now formulated my strategy. I'm going to plug the gap on the left side. I'll set my army up sort of centrally focused between the two gaps. So, so you, you, you had like measured your opponent. You like checked out his army. Mm-hmm. You knew how experienced he was. You looked at the mission, the table, the terrain. Looked at it all. Everything was taken into consideration. Everything was taken into consideration. And this was this was the strategy I ended up with. And this is like the fourth variation of this strategy, right? So we started with the mission, basic strategy. Looked at the terrain, came up with another strategy. Looked at his army, thought, oh, I'll come up with this idea. Talked to him, and I thought, okay, I can be a little riskier with this strategy based on his experience with the army. And it boiled down to the following. Because he had no shooting, first off. I split my army. I didn't even worry about blinding light. So I sat all my, 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 my infantry to the left, um, I guess, plug, and I'd say like the, the choke point. And mm-hmm. the right choke point, I put the remainder of my infantry, but I left some big gaps. And I hung my three or four heroes just sort of in striking range, but they're behind my lines. And I started the shooting. And I also ran my, my cav out on the far left. There's a really small third choke point way away. And I ran that cav out there because I wanted to see if he'd go hunting for those cav. But I knew I'm doing all the measurements and I'm making sure that I'm like 17.01 inches away from his race because I all I know all about the compel charge and I'm mm-hmm. not going to give him an easy kill. And in the process of doing that, I was What's able... What's the 17.1 inches all about? So what happens is when you compel a cavalry model, you can pull it half its move. So you pull it five right. inches Five up. inches? Yeah. And rates move 12. Oh, 12. Okay, yeah. Five so plus 12 is 17. Plus how, many people I've caught, Got it. how many people I've caught doing that where they'll move up, they'll be like 13 inches away, and I'll be like, you're far too close. And it's just compel, <laughs> charge, and then heroic combat usually into someone else. And it's just like, you're just... In the old edition, it was just bowling. You're just bowling left and right, knocking everything over. And so this time, I'm like, I'm not going to give you the kills, the easy ones on my mounts, because I'm still on those those knights, because I still have use for them later on. And so what ended up happening was sort of threw the knights up to bait his wraiths out of position, and it was all about biding enough time for Galadriel, Lady of Light, to cast Fortify Spirit on every one of my heroes. Because the moment that happens... Wraith magic is pretty much useless against my heroes. And what ended up happening is, as his force sort of came right up on me, I swung the door. And that is, I took all my models that were on the leftmost choke point, and I pulled them back. And instead of having a line, I created an L shape with my force, really cutting down uh, the opportunities he had to charge me, and also giving myself more time to continue shooting him. And I pulled everything in, and I just sort of said, you can sit there and let me shoot you, and pretty much I'll get 7 nothing, or you can charge, and we'll, we'll see what comes of it. Yeah, because it's Lords of Battle, it's all about killing, right? Exactly, and he, he rolled in, and unfortunately the turn he charged was the turn he had priority, and I just heroic combated through half of his army, 
by that point, and I swarmed his knights or his wraiths, and I just rolled them, and it was a, a very comfortable eleven to twelve zero win. And that's what so happens. You, so you sort of like allowed his army to come up to be in range of a of a hero shock kind of charge. Exactly. I forced the char. I forced him to charge me with his infantry, and I dangled Faramir out in the open which he jumped on with the wraith and then in doing so I didn't even bother with a heroic strike I just said heroic defense you're not killing me you know yeah. um, but I had him just in range also of Galadriel and then the very next turn charged Faramir in charged Galadriel in and I was able to trap that wraith and kill it and this whole right flank just evaporated from Boromir, Huron and Aragorn heroic combating through and he just, because he couldn't use the magic from the wraiths, he just couldn't shut my heroes down. Yeah, well, that's huge. Like, if, if you're able to cast, um, what is that spell that she casts again? Fortify the, um, Spirit. Fortify Spirit, yeah. That, that's so good at stopping uh, uh, enemy magic mm -hmm. coming on you. Uh, but, like, you basically changed gears, like, a whole bunch of times during that game. Like... Mentally making changes based on certain situations, and right. I know, like you mentioned a lot, like the choke points and, and, and the the type of terrain, like the old school uh, foam hills type yeah, terrain, yeah. and and it's like th that's one of the things that's really important, I think, in in, in the game and and analyzing what you can do. One uh, once you see the board, because the the boards in different tournaments can be wildly different. And oh yeah. If you think about it, like it's one of the factors that's like completely out of your control that can influence like who wins or, or loses the game. It's kind of like this is what you're dealing with, mm -hmm. and nothing you can do about it. Yeah, so. I, I recall my first time going to Articon, and the top ten tables, the first ten tables, uh, all had all those games workshop forests, right? And I recall hearing a story where uh, David C, I won't use last names, versus Ed B, right? Ed is the penultimate Ringwraith player. If you're ever going to learn how to play Ringwraiths, especially in the old edition, you'd speak to Ed because he was phenomenal with them. And David is a very, he's a very strong player himself. Um, but David knew almost out the gate he had very little chance at winning. He was playing a Dole Amroth army. And I think it was some sort of objective grab kind of game. And it all came down to what table they were going to play on. And because they played on one of the top ten tables, there were forests everywhere. And David was like, perfect. You're ring race. You can't fly into a forest. I'm going to grab the objective, run into a forest, and just surround my guy with all my other dudes. And the only way you're getting him is if you, like, get off your fell beast and yeah, try to charge dismount. him. And yeah. what ended up happening is David was able to pull out a very small win. And it was considered to be a huge upset in the tournament. And Ed said, I lost because the table I was on for that sort of right mission. On. Right, right. Yeah. Cool. You know, I played David C at Nova in my very first Nova game. Oh. Yeah, it was a really, really fun game. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what I else did you that say there? I recall that really odd 
Odd, uh, yeah, it was a terrible list, and he just he was there. I forget why he was there. He was there for the summer or something, and yeah. he all he had was an Isengard list. And uh, anyway, I won't get into it. But we played black and forth. It was a fun game, and we we're like, no, no, you're winning. No, no, I'm winning. No, no, you're winning. <laughs> it was like we had to sort of we had to like at the, the game ended. We had to like really go back and forth and tr- try to figure out who won the game. Um, oh, well, there was one other thing that you touched on there that I wanted to make a quick comment on. And um, it was where you were talking about the missions. Mm. Um, Yeah, and the missions. In in the case of your example, too, that was like, in regards to the missions, it was like a fairly easy example for you because it was just about killing. So uh, that was probably a really fortunate mission for for you to have gotten in that situation. Um, But, like, that's one of the things, too. Um, If you're wanting to be really competitive, you really have to spend time uh, with the missions. If you don't have a lot of experience playing, um, then it's basically studying. Like, you Mm -hmm. really have to learn the missions so that during a game, you you don't have to ask as many questions about what your objectives are and what are the conditions, deployment, Mm -hmm. all of these different things, end conditions, and so on. Uh, I know for me, like, that's one of the things that I, like, I can't be bothered to, like, put in the the time, um, you know, memorizing all of that stuff. And and it does hold me back a little competitively, Mm -hmm. for sure. Uh, so if you want to be competitive, learn the missions. You know, we, something we didn't touch about touch on in the pregame is that if you really have no time to like get out and play someone else, and your schedule is really wonky in that sense, um, and this may sound a little silly, you can always play against yourself. Set up two armies. Set up a table. Are you going to get as much out of it as you would? in a uh, playing someone else in this mission? No, but the difference is you will get some value out of playing that mission even if you're playing against yourself because you're like, oh, that's how the mission dynamic works. You know what I mean? And so you can start seeing as it all comes together um, a lot easier than saying, okay, how does this mission work again? So it's kind of like, you know, just to take a step back to the pre-work um, it, it sounds silly, I know, uh, but playing against yourself as an opponent isn't a bad way to say gain maybe two or three or four percent improvement and at least some familiarity with missions. I, I'm just dying, um, trying not to jump all over the playing with myself comments. But, I did you know, not okay. say playing with myself. <laughs> I said playing against yourself. I was very careful with the wording because I know you would go in that direction. <laughs> I was like, I haven't played with myself so much years ever since COVID started. Oh, boy. Okay, there we go. Come on, get your head out of the gutter. <laughs> I'm, t- I'm not, What are you talking about? Okay, let's move on. Alrighty. The next point I wanted to make is, during the game, fluid equals success. What I mean here is, no plan survives the first engagement. More importantly, no plan survives the first set of dice rolls. And you need to accept that sometimes your pregame strategy might fail immediately. And Im- yeah, like in, in your last example, it's like yeah. you, you went through three different plans like before you even moved the first model. Or, uh, and I agree with you on that, but or it may become apparent right after you after deployment that you chose the wrong option. You know, um, you're just like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. And all of a sudden you deploy 
And then you realize, because maybe you weren't paying attention enough to the mission, i.e. you don't have enough experience with the mission, or maybe your opponent moves in a way that you didn't even think about, and you're just like, fudge, I deployed in the wrong way. And so at this point, you need to acknowledge that any pre uh, previous decisions uh, are a sunk cost. They're irrelevant uh, or do not influence future decisions. Uh, Happens to me all the time. Yeah. Deployed in totally the wrong position. <laughs> <laughs> you deploy. You're like, wait, what mission is yeah. this again? Oh, yeah. It's like, oh, I've, de I've deployed completely backwards. That's right. And uh, so at that point, you just got to accept that everything you've done beforehand was an oops, and you got to move on, and you got to sort of reevaluate what you're going to do. And otherwise, you're going to continue with this failed strategy, and you're going to ultimately lose the game. Don't assume that strategy you've stuck with at the beginning of the game is going to work by the end of the game. Uh, in my previous example, I even after I'd made that initial gambit, the initial strategy, I rejigged it about five times before the battle lines actually hit. So you got to be very fluid. I have an example for this. It's different from the one I gave before. All right, let's hear it. So I remember charging my orcish line. Uh, I, was, I had a Mordor army, uh, and I was playing... Um, I think we were playing using the beta army list rules, and this was way back in the previous edition. And I was playing Mordor with Shelob, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to play this because it's it's the one of the ones where like if you... You have more models in combat with your opponent. You get plus one no wound or whatever. That's what I was playing the army bonus. Right. And so I just charged in against an Isengard line, and I did heroes, all my little heroes in the middle, my Gorbag, my, um, I would say Shagrat, yeah, and a couple of the little fiddly ones. And my opponent, this is Mr. Andrew S., uh, Mr. Little Andrew, who's grown up to be Mr. Big Andrew. But, okay, yeah. You know. Uh, Another Andrew. It's all Andrews. It's all Andrews all the time. It's what I like to Hashtag say. Hashtag don't let Andrew win. Yeah, unfortunately. It was a thing at one time. It's still a thing. <laughs> uh, so Andrew was rolling exceptionally well. Like he he couldn't roll below a five or a six. And unfortunately, Orcish battle lines are fight three. And Isengard battle lines are fight four. And he's also strength four. So he's murderating my orcs. Uh, by the bucket full, and I said to myself, you know, if I continue with the strategy of just doing line versus line and hopefully overwhelming him, uh, it's not going to work. And so, yeah, if you're going line versus line against an Isengard player, you're Isengard. playing right into their hands. Pretty much, yeah, because I was hoping that my heroes would sort of punch a hole, and then I can start enveloping his mm -hmm. army and 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 creating two pockets uh, with. Isengard on the right and the left and me sort of enveloping both, but unfortunately it was not working out for me. So instead of continuing with that strategy, I did the age-old, backed my whole army off when I, it was my turn. He didn't call the heroic, I, I just backed up and I reformed my line and moved my heroes to be on the flanks. So I sort of created that, that concave shield wall, shrinking my, 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 my surface area down and what ended up happening was because I created a semicircle, I was able to keep a portion of his Isengard force away from me because it was still much bigger than mine at the time. And it, because I was able to play with that semicircle and just move it around his battle line, mm -hmm. I was able to let my heroes just whittle him down. And eventually I could then overwhelm him with my orcs. And by that point in time, 
Um, I just overwhelmed him, and the, the, the plus one to wound rule kicked in, and I, I took the win. Um, but yeah, if I can... There's a, there's a name for that. It's called a refused flank. Yes, the thing I just called it, the, the tactic I mentioned in the previous yeah. uh, game. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Um, I highly recommend playing with the shifting battle line maneuver, or the refused flank. It's uh, it, it teaches you all about movement and can definitely throw your opponent off and force them to do heroic moves when they don't want to uh, just to make sure they're locking you in place. Um, right, right. So yeah, so sometimes the best approach to a failed engagement is to back off and reform your lines. Yeah. Little Andrew is kind of like Little John and Robin Hood now. He's like, he's, <laughs> he's like this little kid that started coming to tournaments with us when he was like, I don't know, 13 or 14 years yeah. old. And now he's like... He's like a linebacker or something for his school football team. He's like, I don't know, six foot whatever. And like six he's two, huge. six three or something ridiculous. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh, okay, this this went in a different direction. <laughs> <laughs> Can't we still call him Little Andrew though? Yeah, he's stuck with that moniker because you're not taking yeah. my, you're not making me Little Andrew. That's not <laughs> happening. <laughs> yeah, but I, going back to um, your your changing gears and stuff like that, it's just. You need to have a plan B, basically, I think mm-hmm. is, is what it is. And you mentioned it in your first example. You went through a lot of different things. But, you know, they talk about it all the time, or they used to talk about it all the time on the Green Dragons. Like, make sure you got a plan B so that when your plan fails, you got you got a backup. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally agree. All right. So we've discussed the pregame uh, mental situation. But what about the actual game itself um so of course if you're winning the game you probably aren't going to have any uh any mental issues to to deal with any focus problems um you know if you're winning it means that your pre-game assessments your your tactics and and maybe a little luck are are going your way uh, but the big question is what happens when you start losing and your brain starts turning against you and uh, some of your fortitude starts to seep away and uh, you, you sort of sort of start adopting like a negative state of mind. Mm. Well, I think from my experience, um, that first sort of step to um, defeat is something we all know, and that's quicksand. Right, uh, quicksand is a natural event um, that occurs where the sand becomes heavily liquefied, but you don't see that. So as you're walking along, if you happen to be in those areas where quicksand exists, and you take a step in, you start sliding because you weigh more than the liquid sand around you. And what ends up happening is, as you move, you keep sinking further and further in until it becomes really hard, if not impossible, to get out. Fun fact. Uh, I, I didn't know, actually know about this, that quicksand isn't as deadly as the movies make it out to be. Um, it's actually, they've actually almost, there's only one recorded case of quicksand death <laughs> in oh, the really? entire world. <laughs> and that wasn't because the guy died in quicksand, it's because he couldn't get out and he starved to death. Yeah, I can believe that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, it is often used to describe critical moments of uh, athlete indecisiveness in sports, but that very much applies to MESPG. 
So I know we're not, this isn't a big sporting event, but the mental state is pretty much the exact same. You're unfortunately just not getting a seven-digit uh, salary to go along with it. Yeah, and it's basically when you have a plan and you keep trying to execute your plan and it just doesn't seem to be working out. You know, you you throw, you know, five models at three models and you think you're going to kill all three of them and mm-hmm. instead you don't kill any and you lose one, right? And yep. it's like, well, hold on a second. This is, I got to just keep trying because this should be working. Yeah, no, it definitely um, and it's like a large part of your mental fortitude that sort of comes along with that quicksand, um, which is what you're talking about, uh, is the confidence in knowing that your decisions are correct and will play out as you anticipate. So this idea that you throwing guys constantly at the grinder, because I'm like, I know this works, but in th- certain army builds, you can't apply that to every army you play against or every situation you're in. And so... The moment you see, you start to see your decisions falter, whether it's due to your opponent outplaying you or whether like a, a dice discrepancy and a dice discrepancy is they're rolling exceptionally well versus your inability to roll, uh, yeah, which is we've, we've all been, we've all been there, oh, right? Or even if, <laughs> even if the person, even if the other person is just rolling average numbers, but all of a sudden your numbers just tank and, and you're rolling well below the, the bell curve or whatever, yeah. and, like that can be just as bad. Oh, yeah, because you think, you know, like tactics fly out the window at that point, you know, and and uh, doubts start to creep up in your mind as you're saying to yourself, well, this is ridiculous. I'm being beaten by dice. And like like the thought of trying to salvage the game disappears and becomes a grumble fest, you know. Mm -hmm. And so these doubts that start to creep into your brain, this aggravation, um, it starts to reside in your subconscious initially. Sometimes it appears out with just a good old grumble. Other times it's like you do something and you a momentary flash of like second guessing yourself happens, right? And it, it manifests this this growing doubt sort of manifests into a sense of unease. That that flash that that doubt whenever you take an action or or um, when your inner voice, like when it's really bad, your inner voice is saying to you, you've lost, you've lost, don't bother, don't try to, to come up with a solution, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm terrible for that too, is like as soon as, as, soon as things as soon as things, start, <laughs> soon as things start to go wrong, usually if I'm playing the other people, it's, it's not as bad as like when you're playing against your friends, we talked about it before, um, but yeah, and I think the big difference that we're dealing with here and... Uh, is that it's a game of probabilities, right? Yes. Because because you're dealing with dice. Um, it, you, you will have to execute plans and, and you know when you have an advantage because everybody has, if, if not like a literal sense of the probability, you have an idea of whether you're, you have a, a good chance of having your plan succeed or mm-hmm. an average chance or a poor chance. And so when you think you have a really good chance of your plan succeeding and it doesn't, 
you still have to keep in mind that everything that's going to happen going forward is still subject to the vagaries of probability. So mm-hmm. even though your 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 great chance didn't work out, you could try something next time that doesn't have nearly as good a chance of working out. And just by the roll of the dice, it, it could work out. So you always have to keep that in mind. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, when it boils down to it for this particular game, the tactics and strategies we use, the thought that goes into army design, that pre-work game, it's all to do one thing, mitigate dice probability and influence it to fall on your side of the 50 percentile. And no matter what you do, if you roll ones and twos all game long, nothing you do is going to salvage that situation. No, and, and like one thing I do in the game too sometimes when, when a game is hinging on on like a single victory point, let's say it's involving like the wounding or killing of a, a certain hero, and <clears throat> you analyze the situation, you're in a very, very good situation, and it looks like it's going to be pretty well a gimme, mm-hmm. and you, you put you put your your models in into position to wound or kill, you know, let's say the enemy leader or whatever, and you think, you know, well, I should, I should need about this many models in there, that should easily handle the situation. I'll mm-hmm. usually double the amount of models that I need. And the guy will look at me like, like, isn't that kind of overkill? Yes, it is. But yes. it's like I've done it many times where I've put a, enough models on, into a situation and then just all of a sudden the ones and twos come out, right? Uh, like the, For me, my mindset is like if I do a one-on-one or a two-on-one, I feel good about that. Mm-hmm. But when I do a four-on-one or a six-on-one, I actually feel less positive that I'm going to win this fight. Because mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. I had a moment where um, I was playing an Articon, I think two or three years, three years ago now. Um, and I uh, was playing my Mordor plus Angmar plus um, Hunters of uh, Azok Hunters list. So the hodgepodge list. Um, which is really all about a shade, a shadow lord, hunter orcs, and let's 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 have at it. And I was playing a gentleman in game one, and it sort of came down to the, fir- the 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 final sort of push. And I was defending my home area, and I had the shade in range. And this is the last edition where the you know the shade just did his thing. The shade in range, and I swarmed this Mordor troll chieftain, who had no might left. And I had eight hunter orcs on him with spear supports and a banner reroll. It was 19 dice to three. Mm-hmm. And I had a shade. All I needed to do was roll a six. And I win. 19 that's where, dice. Right, that's where right away the other guy rolls first his three dice and gets a six. And you're like, oh. <laughs> he didn't. I rolled eight, 19 dice and got a five highest. Then he proceeded to roll three dice get a six, barge through my lines, charge the shade, and kill it. And I'm like, well, <laughs> that sucked. Like, probability there. It was like almost 100% my way. And yet, no, sorry, B. Sorry about your luck. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, so that, that dice discrepancy, that right there plays on you. Like, there's no tomorrow. Like, you could be using all the tactics and strategies And if it just doesn't go your way, the problem isn't in that moment. The problem is in 
not allowing that moment to influence you and your future decisions, right? That's what quicksand is all about. It's about casting dispersion on your decisions, not in uh, only my opponents outplaying me, I don't know what I'm doing, but in a what the heck that should have worked and it didn't. Yeah. And so, you know, what happens to you is very similar to quicksand. You know, every move, every decision you make, every failed decision you make leads you further towards defeat. And it's as if you're writing your own failure at that point. And when you start showing signs that you're cracking, that's like blood in the water to a shark. Your opponent yeah. is going to just be like, this is a tasty 12-0 win for me. And they'll <laughs> drop the hammer on you. And they will yeah. make risky moves that just sort of throw you off because they're being very aggressive. And you aren't sa- you aren't like feeling confident in yourself. And as a result, they, it, it, you just spiral faster and faster. I, I remember like, a, I, I forget when, probably a couple of years ago now, uh, the Green Dragon talked a lot about this for quite a while. And I forget the other elements of play, but one of them that they talked about repeatedly was momentum. Yeah. Um, and it is, it, it's something that I, I, it's definitely a factor in a game. It definitely does happen in a game. Mm-hmm. But... I, I'm a firm believer of you can shift momentum and you need to pay attention to momentum in a game uh-huh. because when the momentum is not going your way, you have to stop that, right? right. Like you, you have to stop the other person's role. Uh-huh. Um, and that can be done in a whole bunch of different ways. And it's not what we're talking about here necessarily, but uh, mentally, mentally, you have to realize when momentum is not going your way. Maybe you just had some really bad string of luck happen or whatever, but like toss that out. Just look at what's on the board now and reevaluate. You, you always have to sort of reevaluate and try to stay objective. Even when you just got your, you know, poop kicked in. <laughs> yeah, totally agree with you. So I have an example and then I'll sort of jump to the ne- my next point. And the example is golf. This is my big analogy because I play golf. Well, I, I still play golf from time to time. But um, there'll be games, like more games than less, <laughs> that I would um, be hitting the golf club or hitting the golf ball and I'd be doing well, I'd be doing well. And then something sort of creeps into your mind and you, you shank a couple golf balls. I mean, you shoot it off to the right or to the left and it goes in the bush and nothing seems to be working. And so my dad's approach to, to solving this problem is what you're talking about. And that's stop the momentum. And he say to me, take your seven iron because your seven iron in golf is like the easiest golf club to hit and just hit the ball straight 50 yards. So that's, which is, by the way, not a long distance for a seven iron. A seven iron, you can hit between 150 and 200 yards. But your goal here isn't to get big gains. It's to get gains. And then you can start building that momentum to get the big gains like you're talking about. And so one of the, the first steps to doing that, you know, and stopping that eventual slide into defeat is to catch yourself in the process, stopping that momentum and recognizing what's happening in your mind. And that's sort of like doing a quick assessment of yourself. Just you sort of take your hands off the table, you take a step back, and you say, you know, what am I thinking right now? You know, are these negative thoughts? Are they positive thoughts? 
Am I starting to play the blame game? Has my tone changed towards my opponent, become very acidic and vile towards what's happening on the table? So when you, when you figure that out and you say, oh, geez, my mental process, my thought process is drifting really badly into the negative, it's when you need to say to yourself, this is almost at that moment just before the momentum shifts, where it's, if I don't stop this negativity that's going on in my head, the momentum is going to shift hard because my opponent's going to see this yeah. negativity. Like to me, when you talk about momentum, it's it's actually not what's happening on the table. It, it's what's happening in your opponent's mind. It, it's there where they are with how they're doing in the game. And when you have good momentum going, it's because your opponent is giving up. Mm-hmm. And making and making bad choices. Oh yeah, I totally agree with you there. It, it's very much about when you have all the momentum, decisions are effortless. You're spending very little mental energy to make these decisions happen. And um, when you're when you have the momentum, your opponent doesn't have it, which means they're spending a considerable amount of energy trying to outmaneuver you. And so it's a game of who has more momentum than the other. And if you can maintain that momentum for longer than your opponent, generally speaking, you're going to burn out their mental reserves and you're going to force a mistake that's going to give sort of a coup de grace. So if you notice yourself sort of realizing, I actually don't have the momentum in this situation. I'm standing in quicksand. I'm making a lot more mistakes than I should be. You need to just stop what you're doing. Now, this is physically what you need to do. You need to take your hands off the table. You need to take a half step back. You need to take a deep breath and you need to clear your mind. And you need, because mindfulness training tells us that when you, it starts with these deep breathing exercises where you're able to take a deep breath clear your mind and all of a sudden all that negative energy just flows out and you're able to think clearly and this process doesn't take a lot of time no, um, it's it's stay in the moment right you you always have that's what what that's all about this you got to mm-hmm. stay in the moment i mean it, it isn't really intended to to apply to a, a game like this but but it does and, and that is like when, when you've just taken a hammering it's like okay stay in the moment like look at look at what's happening like they got lucky they got lucky on their rolls something uh very you know very unlikely just happened but you know that's over now and let's move on to the next move right exactly and this sort of like moment of pausing doesn't have to be more than 10 or 20 seconds right and this may actually be something you could work on in your pregame as well as how do I do if I react to negativity? Because everyone has a job that plays this game, for the most part. Some some kids don't, but they most people have a job to pay for this. And you have those stressful moments. So like your pre-work could be, how do I deal with stressful moments at work or in life? And all of that can contribute to just like creating this, um, this sort of like one, two, three step to get yourself out of that negativity, which you could then easily apply into this game, especially at a high level. And so when you take that 10 or 20 seconds 
and you clear the mind and all that energy out of you and prepare yourself, you then come back to the table and you take a realistic assessment of where you are in the game. And do not, this is very important, don't underestimate yourself and what your army's capabilities are. And especially, I hate to say this, don't underestimate the dice at this point. Because if you're only rolling garbage dice, you have to have planned for that you, this next couple of turns, you have to assume you're going to continue rolling these garbage dice until these dice show you otherwise, right? And so you need to ask yourself these questions like, what can I do to win this game? What are the simplest actions I need to take right now to achieve it? And, and one, one, one thing I would throw in here too is when you're at that point, it's and we were talking about earlier about keeping your focus. It's like you really have to, in a game, they always say, you know, you always have to play the mission, play the mission, play the mission. Mm-hmm. So like when, when this kind of thing happens and, and suddenly you're, you're on your back feet and um, you're trying to rally, that, that's what you got to focus on. You, you have to focus on the mission and the victory points. Look at, look at the table, look at where the victory points are, mm-hmm. and, and focus on that. I agree. So I, I have a perfect example for this, um, which also I will say, I'll talk about right at the end. I'm just going to wrap up a couple more points, and then I'll hit sure. this example, which really sort of leans into this. Okay. Um, you know, Whatever those easy actions are, those realistic actions are, do them immediately. Because like we just talked about, defeating quicksand is about building momentum through successfully executing decisive maneuvers. Which could be something as simple as, I'm going to move my model six inches to the right. I feel good about that decision. I knew that was a brain-dead decision, but I feel confident in that decision. Okay, we've got something going here. Let's work with this. I'm going to move the next model and it's going to touch the one beside it so that both can shoot next this turn. Fantastic. So these small, simple decisions. And sometimes you need to make an extreme decision. And that can be lines clash. Things are going bad for the last couple of turns. Let's just pull my entire army back and reform my battle line. And... While that may not work realistically, you know, like in real life, in this game, that does work. And so this may cause you to lose out on winning, but it may try to let you salvage a tie. And also, it may open your, yourself up to um, capitalizing on an opportunity where your opponent makes a mistake, a mistake much further down the road. Because as we talked about, when you build that momentum back up, your opponent no longer has the momentum and they're going to eventually crack and make a mistake. And so you could turn that tie into a very minor win. So you got to play the long game with this. And in doing these sort of decisions, you have to never, ever, ever hope the dice will turn in your favor. Never say, my dice are rolling garbage. You know what, next turn they'll roll amazing. And I'll win this game. I mean, yeah, like it, never, never rely on the, <laughs> never, never rely on the dice turning in your favor. Never. Like I rolled bad this turn. Next turn, I'm going to roll good. No, you're going to roll the same every turn. Yeah. Right. And, and you got to assume you're going to roll bad until your dice show you otherwise, and <laughs> then you can change tactics. <laughs> yeah. What is it they say in gambling? Is like never bet against a streak. 
Yes. So if you're rolling bad, probably going to continue to roll bad for yeah. a while. Oh yeah. Until you roll good. <laughs> exactly right. And in craps, um, you know, the gambling, the, it's all about dice, right? So if I'm there's a whole bunch of different players at the table and if one person is successively rolling bad every time the dice sort of roll around to them, I'm going to bet against the pass line, which means I'm betting that you're going to be crap <laughs> so mm-hmm. I can make money. And so that's the goal. Um, and sort of to sum it up with this really beautiful example, um, last Articon, sorry, last TGX, I was playing my my Gondor with uh, with with Hero Spam and Galadriel Lady of Light, like I've mentioned in the past. And I was playing Game 4. Now, game 4 was against Jacob H., who is one of the stronger um, U.S. players, probably one of the strongest U.S. players. Definitely in the top, you know, top three, I would say, just because his ability and skill. And he was playing in, um, the Three Hunters Army of the Dead. Uh, what is it? Return of the King Legendary Legion. Mm-hmm. And we were we were one two at that point. And we were playing the oh my god I can't believe I, remember, I forgot this game. It's the one where you flip objectives and if you roll a six you get it. And then all of a sudden the game becomes about holding that objective. Okay. Yeah, so, I know the one you mean, but I, I don't, don't remember the, the I don't remember the, the mission name off the top of my head. Uh, and so. Uh, my I played a very cagey opening uh, gambit to avoid Legolas obliterating all my horses. And then I was able to charge everything in. All my heroes. And all of a sudden... And, and he was sort of surrounded one of these objectives. And over, before this had happened, I flipped every other objective except one. And none of them were the objective. And I knew that if I had flipped that objective early on, it would be an easy cakewalk for me. But I didn't. So all of a sudden it became down to the usual, he holds one objective, I hold another objective, and then mm-hmm. we, we duke it out in the hopes that one of us flips it. But the yeah. reality is it's, it's going to be a tie. Or it'll come down to break and leader. But anyways, so I got the charge off. Huron charged in, or Aragorn charged in, Faramir, Boromir, all my big hitters all charged in all at once. And I called heroic combats across the board, and I thought to myself, I have enough might on the table. I can probably carve through a good, like, eight or nine Army of the Dead. And Army of the Dead armies generally are quite small, so losing eight models is huge. Yeah, it's devastating, yeah. Every single fight, I had to blow all of the might on my characters, except Aragorn and Boromir, to win the fight and kill a single model. And it was just my dice just became garbage where I would win fights but not kill anything with a lance bonus and a knockdown result. So I'm rolling four dice, needing fives and not getting a single thing, right? Yeah, so dice going against you. Dice going against me. And I got super, super like crusty about it. And I was doing my best trying to sort of maintain it, but he could tell. It's like, oh man, my dice. Or oh man, your dice. And he was probably rolling average dice rolls. You know, and so I had these three knights of Minas Tirith, and I charged two of them in, thinking, okay, I gotta, I gotta, I charge off, lance charge into an army of the deads, two dice to one, I lose the result. He kills the guy, and I thought, oh for gosh sakes, this is all going to the, the crapper. Mm-hmm. And I had my one army, a uh, one knight of Minas Tirith, sitting there on the corner. Nothing was challenging it, and I thought to myself, oh, there's no point shot running this guy, and he's not going to do anything. 
And then my opponent thought he saw blood in the water, or he saw blood in the water, and he pushed everything off this objective to get to my guy. So then he could just roll over my big heroes. And this is actually at the point where Aragorn died. So he roll over my big heroes, and he takes a win. So the momentum was totally in his court at this point. Totally. And so I had a moment where I took a deep breath, I relaxed, and I looked at the mission, and I said, what can I do to win this? I literally don't need two-thirds of my army. It can all die at this point as long as I have that objective. Because really, if I'm holding the objective, I'm winning the game. That's just the nature of the objective game. And so I had my lone Knight of Minas Tirith. His objective was standing behind a fence, but the the fence wasn't more than half of the horse's height. So I'm like, wow, I could just jump over the fence and get off my horse and flip his objective this turn. And so I sort of didn't realize if he knew that. And when he pushed everything off, I said, oh, he made a mistake based on what his knowledge of the rules at that point. He made a mistake. This is my chance to capitalize. So I rushed my horse over, jumped the fence without needing to make a climb test because you don't need to. Dismounted because the rules are you can move your full movement of the mount, but you have to dismount. Uh, but when you dismount, you can't dismount into combat. That used to be the previous edition. You can't do that now. So I dismounted and I flipped his objective. And I'm like, I swear to gosh... The other four turns, when I flipped these objectives, it was nothing. Please, crappy dice rolls, continue at least this one roll. And I rolled, (laughs) and it was garbage. And all of a sudden, I flipped my objective in my deployment zone, way in the back corner. I thought to myself, well, doesn't matter at this point, because I'm holding the objective, and I just won the game. And at that point, Adam, uh, the TO, called out, all right, guys, five minutes left. And I was like... Game in the bag. Because I didn't waste resources doing something stupidly and foolishly. And I hung on. And even though I was falling into that quicksand, I stopped myself and said, what can I possibly do to win? And it came out. Nice. That's a good example. And in that example, I didn't need dice to win the game at that point. I said, you know, my dice are rolling garbage. What can I do from a tactics and strategy point of view, which is essentially what can I do from a movement perspective to win me the game? All right. So all of that, all of that talk that we just had was all about basically trying to get yourself mentally back in a game when you feel it starting to, to slip away. But what happens uh, when you take a very objective look at the game and you realize that, yep, probably going to lose this one. Um, what are your options at that point? Um, do you have any options? And we'll, we'll, I'll throw these out to you, Drew, but mm-hmm. uh, I'll give you the, what I see the options as uh, first, first of, and then we can go through each one. The first one is, and you know, you do see this quite a bit, unfortunately, and it's just like, you give up. However that translates, you just, you give up. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one is, you go for the Hail Mary. Ooh. There's always a chance, mm-hmm. you know, you know, it's, it's like uh, big risks, big rewards, that, that yep. kind of thing. Um, and last one is, you put your head down and grind out the game until it's over. 
Mm -hmm. Those to me are your your three options. I don't know if you have any other ones, but like let's let's go through those those first. I think those are those are really your only three options. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, so sometimes players will like as soon as they realize they're going to lose a game, they they don't want to play anymore. Oh, um, yeah. yeah, and this one here is. Uh, it's kind of like the don't be that guy kind of kind of option, uh, and it's really hard for some people because, uh, especially people that are really competitive. Uh, this mm-hmm. is just my thought. Jump in if you disagree, but um, I, I've seen where I've been playing against highly competitive uh, people when they they get into this uh, position. They, they just don't want to play the game anymore. And it's because they have so much vested in actually getting the win mm-hmm. that as soon as they realize they're not going to get the win, the game doesn't really matter to them anymore. That's true. I've, I've felt that way many a time um, where you might play a game one and it looks like you're going to lose it um, or you know you're going to lose it. And it's yeah. like, that's a game one. It's, like, it's heartbreaking. It, yeah, and it's if if you're a guy that's hoping to win the tournament, it's like you're not going to win the tournament if you lose your first game. Oh yeah, it's, it's the death knell. Like there's the, the the concept of the submarine does not work in our league. As it might work in a seven gamer, um, you know, tournament, but in a four game tournament, if you aren't going four and zero, playing the top best, uh, you, there's no such thing as a submarine. Yeah, and you know we've mentioned before most of our tournaments are one day four games, so yeah. it's it's the way it is. But like it, to me, th- that's one of these situations where uh, ideally you really want to sort of wrangle your emotions, get control of your emotions, and, and continue the game in as a friendly a manner a- as you can. And, and to me, what I always think of. It, Especially if you're playing somebody that that may be new or may not win a lot of games or whatever, and it's like you got to remember that although you're unhappy about what's going on, it's like your opponent has as much invested in the game as you do. Um, so you being like maybe a bit of a poor sport about it, it like it rubs off on them, right? And you got to remember that your opponent may have, have just played their best game, put everything they had into playing you and, and getting the advantage. Y- you can't take that away from somebody. Mm-hmm. I remember playing Garrett up in, ah, uh, gosh... It was an all-hero tournament, I think. It was Ben's all-hero tournament up in um, up where he lives. Barry's Bay. Barry's Bay, that's right. And I remember coming up against his list and thinking to myself, son of a gun, I don't have what's needed to beat his list. I legitimately, right out the gate, I knew his list was stronger than mine. Yeah. And because they nerfed the Dwimmer Lake by not allowing it to be in there. And I remember... Um, just sort of like becoming a sourpuss McGee as he was hammering away on me. And he, and unfortunately, the social contract doesn't apply against for friends. And he just looked at me and he said, dude, this is finally my chance to win a tournament. I'm really enjoying this. Don't sour it with your attitude. <laughs> and he was totally right. I bit my oh, lip yeah. and said, I did it. And I said, you know what? You're right. Let's do this. And I got back into the game so that he could enjoy the game. And but still, unfortunately, it it tainted the win for him. And he's like, "Well, I won. 
I've got a chance to win this. Don just needs to tie or win this. And then we walk over there, and Don's like, yep, I lost. And the game's <laughs> not even done yet. He just, like, he didn't even bother to walk his models halfway across the table. They just lost a guy out the gate. He said, oh, I lost. And then he just gave his opponent the 12-0 win. And his opponent won the game, and Garrett got second. And Garrett was this, like, he was so disheartened. Because of Don giving up and me Why'd giving up. Why'd you have up. to like flip this and make me the bad guy? It's hey, we, like, <laughs> I <laughs> had to, to, go to salvage this. I had to say to him, look, I'll buy you dinner tonight. <laughs> hey, appreciate that, buddy. Yeah, no problem. I saved your bacon as you're just... Okay, like, let's move on to the other area. Let's move on. <laughs> okay, so another choice is, uh, and, and it's a very reasonable choice, it's the Hail Mary. And that... You know, usually, even though you know you're probably going to lose a game, but you're not necessarily out of it, you can still, like, hang in and maybe try to do this or that. You can throw everything into one sort of crazy gambit. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you're into history, um, it's it's like the Battle of the Bulge kind of situation. Uh, World War II, Germany, uh, Western Front. They're like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna go for the hail mary. We're gonna throw all of our reserves into this one desperate action, and if it works, who knows? Maybe we'll have a chance. Well, yeah. bad part about a plan like that is, if it doesn't work, it means that you usually will end up losing that much faster. Oh, usually if you're throwing a hail mary and it's like a sizable hail mary, if you don't pull it off, it's almost a guarantee. You, it's almost the effect of like you're giving up because you're giving your opponent like a huge win. Yeah, and it, it's basically because you're you're taking like all of your reserves um, and you're putting everything into like a very compromised position usually and hoping that you know you're gonna roll sixes on everything yeah now in that situation if like i the i see the logical like transition between the give up to the hail mary and that's for like i give up i give up but like you know what if i'm here to have fun with this why don't we try something crazy low probability and it's at least a story i can talk about and that's kind of like the positive takeaway from a give up a potentially negative takeaway from the give up is like, I'm going to go with the Hail Mary. I'm going to be super competitive about this. And then you're just like, huh, that didn't work. And the problem with that is you then get even more sour pussy. You get, you get just so negative. So if you're going to go with the Hail Mary, have fun with it. Yeah. Don't expect like, it to work. Yeah. You're just do it. It's 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 low odds, so you know expect expect it not to work, but you never know. There's always there's always a chance, and like you said, it's better than just being a sourpuss and giving up and like, you know, taking your models off the board before they're even uh-huh. killed and all of that, right? It's, um, but what about the last option? Uh, mitigate the loss, grind out the game. Um, so, so that one there is you figure your chances are pretty much evaporated, but you still have enough models left on the table that you can still play the game and you can still influence the final outcome. You can still influence the score. Mm-hmm. The problem with this option is that it requires discipline. It requires oh, yes. mental discipline because you have to 
maintain your formations on the table you have to play smart with your with your units you got to try to protect the vps that you have already won or you're mm-hmm. already holding and you have to try to find ways to try to maybe squeeze out another victory point or two more victory points mm-hmm. um you got to do all you can to try to deny your opponent any more VPs. Mm-hmm. You have to, like, there'll probably be a few VPs that are that are not achieved yet, so they're, they're still up in the air. Um, or there are some VPs that, that you're holding. And it's like, you have to try to protect those VPs like the game depends on them, even though it doesn't depend on them. You, you have to, I totally agree with you. Um, this is something that if you can do, um, uh, like it's, of the three situations, this is the most ideal. And it actually can give you like long-term gains. You know what yep. I mean? You have to assume that whatever the score is right now, let's say it's like 7-2, your opponent is winning, and you mm-hmm. know you can't get those points. You have to assume the 7 and the 2 are off the table. And you have to say your opponent's got five le- five VPs left that he can gain. My goal is to make sure he gets none of them. And my goal is to also make sure that I might be able to pick up one or two more VPs. Because, again, I don't yeah. expect to win. But my goal is to stall the game at where it is and not have it move forward. Now, I will say this. There's two really, really good reasons why you would do this. And the first is the long game. And that is if you're playing in a league. If you're playing in a league and your objective is to win the league, winning a tournament is less important than winning the league. Because you have to think of your tournaments like battles and the league is a war. Winning or losing a battle doesn't mean you lose the war, right? Mm-hmm. But I'll go back to, keep going back to this example of myself versus... Um, uh, my, my, myself uh, in, in, in the top game of the last um, tournament where I overextended myself and um, instead of playing very cagey I rushed in lost the game and I think I got 8 out of like 20 individuals this was a 100 point game Yeah. but if I had played to say I'm never going to win this game what is, what is the best result I can get out of this and if I played it in that way and what would have ended up happening is I could have picked up a third place or a fourth place, which has, in a 100-point game, mm-hmm. has a significant difference in VPs, almost to the point of you winning an 80-point event. So yeah. when you look at the long game you and you're playing in a league, you really have to say to yourself, I want to win the league, which means I need to get the four best scores. Getting the best score doesn't mean you've won an event. That would be great if you got four 100-point wins, but that's totally unrealistic. Getting a 90 or like an 82-point fourth-place finish because you lost that last game and you're very tight with it is the equivalent of winning an 80-point event. So that's huge. That's huge, yeah. Like back, back down to the individual game, the, the reason why, and, and this is the way I always try to play when I'm losing a game, doesn't always work, but I always try to adopt this strategy when I feel I've I've lost a game um, or not going to win a game. And the reason, the primary reason, aside from point denial from my opponent, is that a lot of the time, if you're playing against somebody that's really hungry for the VPs, you know, 
if you stick in it and don't give up, they'll make a mistake. Like, you're playing a conservative game at this point. You're just, like, hunkering down, protecting what you've got, and just not giving up. And as the clock ticks down, they want those last three or five victory points. And it's quite likely, and it's happened many times to me, where my opponent in the late game has overextended themselves and allowed me not to win the game, but to actually get a few additional victory points and and bring the game that much closer. Mm-hmm. Now, and this is the this is definitely the outcome you're looking for, and and this sort of like leans to another point I want to make, and that's reputation, right? Like reputation in um, a league or a series of events is really big. Um, if you have the reputation of being a very top player, that has a psychological impact on your opponent. Because again, it's like play. It's like when we talked about in the game section, who I'm playing against has as much of an impact as what army they're playing. Because I know I'm going to be in for a tough game. So mm-hmm. if you cultivate this mental discipline of always grinding out those games, then what happens is if when your opponent plays against you, they're like, "This guy is a solid player. This person is a solid player." either winning or losing, they're going to play a really strong conservative game and they're going to grind it out. They're not going to let you get a single VP easily. So when that happens, you know, you end up actually creating a psychological impact on these very these very aware competitive players where they're like, I can't be aggressive because I will open myself up for that opportunity because this person has proven themselves to be this type of grinded out player. And so what ends up happening is they actually stop themselves from getting those VPs that you're actually working towards. So your reputation is um, sort of creating this prophecy of, of, uh, of this is going to happen. <laughs> and you actually don't have to work as hard to do this. And what that may actually end up doing for you is it may end up starting to slowly swing that momentum. And you may not know it until like the last five, six minutes of a game, but you may actually end up seeing a tie or a small win sort of appear. So never, yep. ever, ever give up. I remember this happened to me in, in uh, one of the two tournaments that we've had this year. And it was at the first uh, first tournament. We were at Lords of War in Toronto and I was playing Ronan, mm-hmm. and I have oh, a terrible yes. I have a terrible win loss record against him. In fact, I don't know if I've really ever beaten him, except for when he was maybe just a little kid. Um, and we had one of these games, and I had uh, my Isengard army with like tons of uh, three might heroes i think i had 17 might it was we talked about this bit before yeah it was really fun army to play he had uh azog's hunters or azog's legion one of those and it was just a knock down drag them out type of game he had azog in there chopping me up into pieces Mm -hmm. um and we were just slugging it out slugging it out and I thought I'd lost. Mm-hmm. I, I thought I had lost the game, uh, but stayed in there, kept playing, kept playing, kept playing, um, and eventually the game timed out. And he said, "Yeah, you've won." And I'm like, "What?" And he's like, "Yeah, <laughs> you, you won the game." Meanwhile, like I can't keep track of the victory points. There's so so much going on, but he can, and he had he had it in his mind. 
when we figured out the game and you know it was a close it was close you know it was whatever seven five or like that that kind of mm-hmm. score six five whatever um, but I actually came out on top of that game and I could have easily just given up because in my mind like I thought that I'd lost yeah. um, so there's one example recently for me where I actually hung in the game and somehow managed to pull it out yeah no, I tell you that that's that's exactly what you need to be doing. You need to hang into that game, play a conservative game, and then in the end, you want to see if because what may end up happening is you playing that conservative grind him out kind of game. You don't know what your opponent's thinking. Your opponent might be thinking, "Oh my god, I, they they see all these moves that you don't see, and they realize I've already lost." But you, you're just like, <laughs> "I'm just going to play a conservative game." Grind it out, take a small loss, move on with my day. Whereas they're like, oh my God, he's playing it so perfectly. Yeah, I know. And you're just like, huh, I won. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? There's so many times where I, I've lost games and I make comments to my opponents afterwards and I'm just like, oh yeah, when you did this, I knew the game was over. And they're like, wait, what? And I'm like, yeah, because when you do this, then X, Y, Z happens and I can't beat it. And, and that's the game. And they're like, oh, I didn't even see that. And so what ends up happening is actually when you play these really aware competitive players, you may not even realize it, but they see three or four moves ahead and they realize yeah. And that's the curse of it. Because when you see three or four moves ahead, you're already seeing impending doom coming. And so you're already putting this sort of pressure on yourself. Whereas if you're only sort of a one move ahead kind of person... You're yeah. like, I don't see it, so I'm just going to keep playing the way I'm playing. And that may actually avert your, your divert your that loss that you, a more aware player would have had into a win. Yeah, it's the, please don't move your guy there. Please don't move him there. Please don't move him there. Yeah. Oh, he moved him there. Damn. Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, do you want to move on to uh, our next segment, What yeah. Have I Got In My Pocket? What Have I Got In My Pocket? All right, we're back for what have I got in my pocket, and this is where we ask each other a prepared question Mm -hmm. uh, that the other one doesn't know about, so it's kind of, uh, it'll be spontaneous that's right uh you want me to ask the first question or are you are you ready to I go? don't re- worry i'm not i'm not going to throw out another painting challenge at you because i know well, you fa- you failed hard on I that failed one. hard the last time and just just you can't do that to me man can't do that to me <laughs> okay i won't i okay. won't do that <laughs> i have a question that is middle earth related but not book related this time around not book related okay okay we have a gaming tournament that we host along with Garrett uh, called the Canadian Shire and which is sort of like a this this podcast is sort of a derivative of that so north of the Shire yeah yeah we have an image in the Canadian Shire which has become also our trophy image and I believe you were the one that came up with this this image this idea so do you want to my question to you is what was your inspiration for it as well as elaborate as to what it is, the image, and why you, what inspired you to choose this image? <laughs> uh, 
Um, it's a pretty well, iconic image, you know. Yeah, it, it is. And what the, I'll just say what the the tournament name Canadian Shire, and the image is um, the Hobbit door. So it's the round door, like mm-hmm. a bag end door, uh, painted green, and it's got Gandalf's little mark on it, mm-hmm. and. The, in blue. The, and the graphic on there is Canadian Shire. And at the very top of the door is a maple leaf, which is an iconic symbol for Canada, right? It's on our flag and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so in Canada, we have a, there's a company here called Canadian Tire. Mm-hmm. And it's right across the country. It's a national com- uh, company. Uh, and they sell like automotive parts and they, they have gas pumps and they, they also have uh, lots of like camping, sporting goods, home, homeware or whatever. A lot like, of stuff these yeah, all, all kinds of different stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, like anyone that lives in Canada knows what Canadian Tire is. Mm-hmm. And their logo, it's the same colors, but just sort of flipped around. And it's like they have red and green and white in, in their logo. But their logo is a triangle. And at the top of the triangle is a Canadian, uh, or a maple leaf rather. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and so that was kind of the motivation, just because like everybody who lives in Canada is going to come to our tournament, is going to mm-hmm. know that Canadian Shire is kind of a play on Canadian Tire. So like I even like had the the graphic artist that I that I know that I had do the do the logo. I'm like, okay, here here's the font for Canadian Tire. Mm-hmm. So I don't want you to use this font because you know don't want to get in any trouble but uh, like make the word canadian as like similar font to the canadian tire mm-hmm. uh logo and then the the word shire is kind of the uh middle earth sort of style yeah, font yeah. yeah so and then the whole thing put together it's like on a round circle and it's green instead of red and you know mm-hmm. uh, our maple leaf is red so so that's what it was. It was just kind of like it was kind of a play on on that. It was a, a play on something that everybody that's local here would would kind of get the inside joke. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I just thought it'd be kind of cool. So. Uh, it it took off. We have it on uh, our to shirts. We have it on trophies, which are very sought after things. Um, and it's become a well-known sort of name around here. And I was always, I was always curious because I remember just one day you sort of threw the graphic to Garrett and I, and I was just like, "This is it! It's perfect! It's awesome!" <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I never really had that opportunity to ask you as to what is the etymology of it. You know what I mean? The, what is the, the history yeah. behind it? Yeah, well, I mean, we had, you know, we were trying to think of a name for for quite a while and came up with a lot of different options. But when I kind of thought of that one, it kind of just sort of fit right into place and seemed to be exactly what I was looking for. And then when I thought of like the logo and like the circles and triangles and all that, it was it was just kind of a it was a given. It was a given, yeah, All yeah. Right. So that's so that's that one. We should talk more about our tournament sometime. Yeah, you know, give it a give us a, give ourselves a little plug because it's a very different type of tournament. I think I think people would be interested that like haven't been like not local people because uh, uh, they they know, but it, it's a very different kind of tournament. And since we've run this tournament, we've run it twice. This would have been the third year. Uh, um, since we've run that tournament, I've seen elements of our tournament start popping up in in other 
other tournaments in mm-hmm. our scene too. Um, so it's it's pretty interesting, like what you can do uh, when you come up with some new and unique ideas, and you start to see them catch catch on. And yeah, no, it's um, and the really sad part was um, like our tournament had a lot of demand. People really wanted to come to our event. Yeah, um, I mean, I think the last time we we posted it, we had a sort of a fun game to sort of hype up the event and when it's going to be sold. And I think we sold out in about seven minutes, all 20 seats for yeah. our event. Well, and first year we only had 20. Second year we 22. had 24, 24 I think. that's right, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so the, the thing that was sad was that this year, um, the, the, the place we did do it in is under new ownership. And they sort of restructured the area, which would have given us the opportunity to sort of maybe even expand to 30 or like 36 people. And mm-hmm. it would have given us that because we really didn't want to leave that that space. Yeah. It was so perfect for us. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, do you want to actually plug it right now? Because we've already talked about half of it. <laughs> well, yeah, Canadian Shire next October, I guess we'll I hope so, yeah. uh, we'll be there. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. Can, you'll be able to find the event on the OSBGL. That's right. Page and, and eventually, not yet, but ours would be the premier hobby event of Ontario. Let me tell you how amazing this event is. Each table has a unique mission and a unique set of terrain to go along with that mission. These missions have all been player play tested, so don't worry. There's there's balance to them, um, but the reality is the missions are actually designed to not let you get maximum points because it should be exceptionally hard to do that, and especially when you are supposed to be bringing a hobby based tournament or a hobby based army. List, this, yeah. This this tournament is not about being competitive whatsoever. Yeah, it's uh, is is the word antithesis is that is that the word? It's I the think antithesis so. of uh, what competitive players would like or expect to see. Let's yes. not go over the whole thing. This could be a whole episode, man. Oh, fair enough, fair enough. You know what? Let's do that, and we can also throw in a segment on how to TO, or our <laughs> thoughts on TOing, because um, we seem to be doing a reasonable job at it. Uh, there you go. Uh, you know, thought number one, have two TOs. <laughs> <laughs> doing it solo just sucks. Okay, anyway, ask me your question, man. Shut up. I already You're going asked on you a question. Long. You have to ask me a question. Oh, I got to ask you. It's my turn. <laughs> we talked so been, long with somebody been, else, you forgot. <laughs> you're talking about it so long, you... <laughs> Oh my God! Okay, so mine is is back to the game. Alrighty, back, back to the into game. the game. Okay, is there a hero profile in the game right now, current edition, that you think is overpowered or undercosted? Either one really basically means the same thing. Oh, so many contenders for this. Who, who'd um, be a contender? Give give us like a short list. Well, do you I'll think? give you a, I'll give you the used to be contender, and that was Kirdan. For the points and for the fact that at the time he was a hero of fortitude who could be allied. We don't say that name here. <laughs> um, I think for um, well, there's there's yeah. I think this one is probably the best one. I think for higher level compared to higher level um, players who really wanna um, shore up a whole bunch of weaknesses all at once and do not care about armyless bonuses. Glad mm-hmm. Lady of Light. I expected her to be hit a lot harder with the addition change. In fact, I think she went up five points only. What is she, 130, 125 she, she was, in there? She was 125, now she's 130. She okay. has a hero of Valor, so she dodged the latest series of allies. Look at me, knowing the point values of my I know, right? Macro. 
And she brings so much to the table, it's ridiculous. She brings anti-magic for your all your heroes. What's that? Ring rates? Uh, give me a couple turns and that's irrelevant to me, your magic. Mm-hmm. She brings anti-shooting, but you don't have to cast a spell to make it happen. It just automatically happens. She brings um, courage debuffs and that she's a six inch negative one courage debuff, which actually can be pretty big. Yeah. Um, and has won me many a game just by tying up all your heroes and then the negative one just grinds you down. And in fact, it synergizes it synergizes so well with Boromir's Horn of Gondor because he forces a courage test, which you're at minus one if she's in range. She also brings um, incredible resilience, even though she's defense three, she still has three fate. She has one of the rings of the three elven rings, so she gets re-rollable. to re-roll her fate. Yeah. And she also brings three friggin' might. Now, and, 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 fight six. Fight six with three attacks and never counts as unarmed. Yeah. With, with strength four, which is the thing she didn't have before. Now she's yeah. strength four. So that's the critical number to beat the garbage out of uh, defense six and defense Yeah, a models. few years ago I, I used her in a couple of lists. And I remember using her and like actually fighting a lot with her. And it's like, I'm just going to throw her into the fight because she's fight six, got three attacks, strength four. And like, you know, the fight six a lot of the time will like win you the duel. Yeah. The the fight six is huge because it's elven level fight level. Um, And which means most of the human heroes or most of the evil heroes have to strike up against you. Oh, by the way, she also has heroic strike because why not? Right. Um, (laughs) And... What ends up happening is she locks down the shooting. She she locks down the the, the magic. Um, she's got the six will and the courage seven. So she's an amazing sort of center point to stand fast around. She doesn't die easily, even with the defense three. Um, that even if you you're playing against an army who doesn't shoot, you're playing against an army who has no magic. She can just be like, okay, well, I'll just act as a fight six strength four hero and just punch the bejesus out of stuff and I'll still yeah. make my points back. And it's like, that's how she acts all the time. She just, she's able to do it all. Oh, and I forgot to mention the other spell she has, banishment. Oh, you have a spirit on the table. I'm just going to cast the deadliest spell against you. Sauron at 400 points. Galadriel can kill Sauron without too much effort. Yeah. Yeah, it's she's definitely one of the ingredients to the um, what would you call it? Uh, like a lot of games, they call them like Death Stars and yeah. and, and, and all that, where you, where you have like a uh, maybe one or more than one heroes uh, who has like an area of effect kind of going on, and you get kind of this like death bubble happening on the on the table yeah. she's definitely one of those models that you see in those kind of builds and I, I remember playing a game at nova the last nova and uh, i was playing against an an elf army that had her in it um and it was what's the spell where you have to take a terror test also in order ah, to uh, aura of not courage or dismay. is it aura of dismay, aura of dismay or, which kirdan has yeah, yeah, and it wasn't Kirdan. <laughs> Who else has? Anyway, uh, it, he had Radagast two characters. He had two characters. It was her and uh, someone else that was doing that, and and he had his whole army of elves, like most of them in that area, and you know playing very defensively, 
and shooting at me and I'm like how do I get at this guy mm-hmm. and I had Isengard and it was it was very frustrating trying to trying to break into that mm-hmm. bubble yeah so so that's your answer is that that's your final answer is Galadriel Lady of Light depend whenever I look at um, you know a tournament and the meta and the missions and all that kind of stuff I have to ask myself how prevalent is shooting going to be unfortunately I have to say this shooting has become too strong in this game for the points return. Like, I can spend between 12 and 24 points, and I will always get a return on my investment. Always. If I'm What do you mean, 12 and 24 points? Well, 12 bows gets you... Is either 12 points, because it's one point apiece, or oh, it's an elven bow, yeah. and, or yeah. a crossbow, and comes two points. So, yeah, to clarify, I can always buy 12 bows for my army, and I will almost always get equal return on my investment, if not double. And if I'm an evil player, I am getting 100% return on investment all the time because if I shoot my guy and remove him from combat with like an Aragorn King LSR to prevent a heroic combat, that just saved me the game. That's like, that's a hard to calculate, but it's like immensely valuable. Yeah. And so, well, yeah. I, I think for her, the thing too is that it's not like you're buying, you know, uh, Gandalf the Grey or Gandalf the White or uh, somebody in that point range. You're only paying 130, and mm-hmm. she's utility like crazy, um, you know. And the fact that she has that ability and doesn't actually have to cast the spell, mm-hmm. it's just always there. It's very reliable. Yeah, I, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think so? Do you think she uh, her points need to be increased, or you think she needs to be? Uh, toned down a little what, what do you think I, I think that for her to use the vial uh, which is what her her, her Galadriel yeah. vial is um, I think it needs to like like the ring rights you need to spend a point of will to activate it right that would make sense given what's happened to the ring race yeah so that because you know in the breaking of the fellowship Frodo gets the vial. Now, does she get a free point of will every turn too, or no? She does. Oh my goodness. That's the other thing. She gets a free point of will and she starts at six wills, so you're almost never burning it out. So by forcing you'd have to burn the will on the vial, that free, that the file, the free will. Mm-hmm. If she wants to cast Fortify Spirit, if she want, or Banishment, she's burning her will reserves, which is very dangerous because if she runs out of will, she can't maintain Fortify Spirits on your whole army, right? Right. Which a canny magic player with some shooting, like a like a Lake Town with Gandalf the Grey, can really put pressure on her if she has this sort of impediment. And, and, and secondly, I'd probably knock her down to two attacks instead of three if you're going to keep mm-hmm. her at the 130-point level. Now, making those two changes really sorts starts to sort of like peel her back as a character. To me, she's still worth it at that price, though. Like To me, that's not a, like a horrible, horrible nerfing. I think that's quite reasonable. It's a, it's a reasonable nerfing. Because if you start tinkering with the price and changing other variables, um, what ends up happening is that she becomes like unusable. Also, I, what I would suggest is probably taking her six wheel and dropping it down to maybe four, which you think to yourself, well, you know, the, the, the base Galadriel is six, but it's like she's in her war form. The war form has to take um, willpower to maintain takes willpower to maintain and that should result in her not having a lot of will reserve 
um, to be able to cast spells. So just by reducing that will to four, making the vial cost one a will a turn, and mm-hmm. reducing her attacks to two but maintaining her points level, she's still a reasonable model to use. You're just toning it down so she can't do everything and be great at everything. Yeah, I think you know that, that that might not be the exact recipe for a nerfing on her, but there's definitely some some good ingredients there where you know we could try doing some of the stuff like that to try to tone her down a little bit. But yeah, yeah I think that's a good answer. I after going through her profile with you, I would agree that she is. Uh, you're getting more than what you're paying for there. I oh think. Oh my God, yes. Yeah, and just given what's happened to the ring race in in the new edition, I think. I think having her spend some will to to have that effect happen is is more than fair. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think static effect ability should cost something, especially magical ones. Um, you know, and like even like the Horn of Gondor, like maybe using the Horn of Gondor so much requires Boromir to spend will to be able to blow the Horn of Gondor, mm-hmm. um, like that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, that's my answer. Sounds good. I like it. Excellent, excellent answer. All right, let's move on to the next segment. All right, are we ready for a little All That Is Gold Does Not Glitter? I think we are, yeah. Excellent, excellent. So last week's question uh, when Chris was here with me was what is the most underrated model in the game and it can either be warrior or hero any anything mm-hmm. okay so uh, so you were you were gonna say something about meta oh right right because this is your you're you're queuing me up because i've missed the queue uh <laughs> yeah, get with the get with the game man. get with the game man. that's right um you know some of these responses we're seeing here um i'm sure these models are actually being used a lot or extremely popular in other metas it's just some of this, these answers are going to be very meta dependent in our area we may not see these models used in other areas they're like the penultimate mud choice so sure, yeah, yeah. buyer beware in terms of what we're listing here yeah and some of these answers kind of surprised me as well mm-hmm. um, but we'll go, well. we'll go through them do uh, you want me to start? I think you should okay so the first one I have is Chris who was with me uh, last time our, our, our other host mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so he talked last time about he's doing um, one of the Lake Town lists. So he says that I would say the Lake Town Guard is very underrated. Um, that's because it has a base fight of four and only costs five points, which is the same price as the Lake Town mani- Militia. Um, he says that's pretty well the reason why he, he built that whole army. Mm, true. Um, and also, when you combine it with the master's special rule, which I forget what it is, something about his purse strings or whatever. Oh, the, the master of Lake Town special rule is that if he burns a point of will, I think... No, all, it's might. It is might. Oh, it is might. Right. So he burns a point of might, all models within 12 inches of him gain plus one fight value. Yeah, so it's six inches, but it's twelve inches if it's like that's their army bonus. That yeah. ability goes up to twelve inches. If you're, yeah, and it, so it also increases them to fight five or plus one fight value, along with a couple of other models, some heroes, and counts as a banner. Right. So like when you combine that with Alfred, who can contribute more might. Like I think the master only starts with two might, but using Alfred, he can get more might. 
Um, so that makes that lowly troop pretty impressive. Oh yeah, no, I think you know having a fight four, fight five front rank and hoarding them out because a twelve inch radius. Because if you're really going to lean into this style of play, you're going green allies only because you really want that army bonus, right? And so having 24 inches of the board being covered with this plus one fight value is pretty huge. Yeah, and you're always going to take Alfred, and he's always going to give his might to the master. Right, exactly. I mean, you're this is a kind of army build where you're going to take the master, you're taking Alfred, and you're also taking Bard. Even though Bard's not going to be as strong as he would in a Survivors of Light Town army, Bard's just a great sort of like bullet. You just send him at something because you don't really yeah. care. He's not your leader. No. no. Okay, well, let's move on. Um, so you, you grab the next one. Okay, so Michael from Chicago. We have a, a fellow from the U.S. He's got his vote in for Glorfindel, Lord of the West. And he says... I know he might not seem underrated, but I think he's often overshadowed by the other two powerful elven lords, especially with Elrond. I give you that. However, I'll almost always take him as my leader because of how versatile he is. He is a three-fate horse lord with a 12-inch horse that, by the way, because of um, Surefoot, I think it's called, and Woodland Creature, he actually can run through difficult terrain on his horse and charge without taking any penalties. Nice. Uh, he's also resistant to most brutal power attacks. I'll caveat that because he's not resistant to barge, but he's resistant to rend, which is a biggie. And he's got fortify spirit built in, and he's got fight seven. On top of that, he also has uh, Lord of the West, so he's got the reroll for hit and wound. And yeah, for his points value, I think he's 170 all in. That's really solid, and he's he's definitely one of the most versatile. Uh, elven lords uh, outside of Elrond. Elrond is the most versatile, whereas Glorfindel is the most hardest hitting. Like, Glorfindel is probably the, the strongest and, and deadliest of the elven lords, and Glorfindel kind of falls in between that, I think. Yeah, I think he's he's a beast, really, honestly, in, in combat. it's He negates a lot of things. He negates monsters, he negates magic, and he fights at them. Yeah, and I think, I think uh, Michael is sort of hit the nail on the head there where um, he's kind of overshadowed a little bit because you see, at least we do anyways, Elrond is really common because he's really good. <laughs> Elrond's probably the best of the three just because of his versatility. Who is the third? Uh, Gilgalad. Oh, yeah, 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 Gilgalad. Yeah. Even though Gilgalad is the king, he's often considered to be second-rung um, to Elrond, just because Elrond's abilities, you, you having Rivendell Knights with no penalty to your shooting is just crazy. Like they're the best, they're the best cat in that game. So to be able to take potentially up to eighteen of them and not have that affect your bow limit is it, kind of silly. Is that a special rule that he brings? That's right. That's what Elrond brings. Elrond brings. Um, you can take any number of Rivendell Knights. In Elrond's Warband, do not count towards bow limit. Wow. He also brings Gift of the um, Eldar, which gives him that D6 roll at the beginning of the game. And whatever you roll, that's how many foresight points you get. Yeah, and you that's can, a pain in the butt playing against that. It negates a lot of their might issues because you can burn some of those foresight points to win that priority. Sure. Or choose to not win that priority. 
But yeah, so that's there's many other bonuses that Elrond brings to the table, and I could see why he's almost always taken. So yeah, I would agree that that um, Glorfindel is considered to be second or third, um, and is definitely underrated. Moving moving on to the next person. Moving on. So next is Steve Stokes, who we've talked about before, Mm -hmm. and he gives two answers. He gives a hero, and then he gives a warrior. And I gotta say, I'm kind of surprised at the hero answer. He says Huron the Tall. And I have a hard time with that one because we see a lot of him actually in, in our, uh, our scene. I, uh, I, uh, I play uh, Minas Tirith. It's my army pretty much right now. And it almost always is Boromir or Aragorn and then Huron the Tall. He is always the second choice. Yeah, and yeah. like he's got a good profile, but like to me, the reason I think that I see him a lot, and I've got the book here, and I had to look up the rule because it's this rule I think that makes him really popular, and it's called line of command. If the leader of your army is a Gondor hero, then whilst you're in the tall is alive and on the battlefield, your opponent cannot score victory points for slaying the enemy leader. Like, that's I think why I always see that guy in army lists because you basically have to kill two models in order to get leader kill. Um, actually, I would say that's kind of a bonus with him. I don't take him for that reason. That's sort of like an indirect bonus when you have him paired with Aragorn, and you and when you pair him with Aragorn, you always have him within three inches of Aragorn, King Elisar, and there's a reason. He's got two other special rules when he's within three inches. One, he gets to re-roll a dice in the dual roll when he's within three inches of Aragorn because he's trying to show off to the boss. It's either Aragorn or Denethor. And two, he's fearless. Yeah. So he's two attacks normally, three attacks bay, or three attacks on the charge with the cav. Aragorn King LSR has the banner, so it gives him a re-roll. Then he gets another re-roll because uh, he's within three inches of Aragorn. So all of a sudden he rolls five dice in a dual roll on the charge. Yeah, that's and crazy. he brings a mastercrafted sword, so he always gets the lance bonus, the plus one to wound effectively. And he's 90 points. Like, he's a steal on top of being a hero of valor. Like, and a three-might hero. Like, there's just so many things to go with him that offensively, he's a beast. And, yeah, he also brings this other really nasty ability that can win you games. All right. Well, maybe maybe what Steve is saying is he's agreeing with you that he is really good, but he doesn't see him used a lot and therefore thinks he's underrated, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, his other answer, uh, I definitely agree with, and that's... Yep. Um, uh, and it's, a, it's sort of a generic answer, and it's a warrior with a war horn. Um, and he goes on to say that courage is so important, and I rarely see people taking a horn in evil armies. So, yeah, it's you don't see a war horn very often, um, like just your basic war horn. Like there's yeah. certain models that give that bonus. Um, which are more common, but you don't see a lot of people just taking a regular old warhorn. And I did mention to him when I was talking to him that there are some evil armies that actually don't have access to a warhorn. Mm-hmm. So that's like probably why some of them don't have warhorns. But right, uh, I'd agree with him. It's a really underrated choice. It's also 
The problem I find with the Warhorn versus the Banner is that with the Banner, you can always trade it off, right? Yeah. So you get that, unless you're, you're losing the game because your opponent's rolled over your banner, or you just placed your model wrong, you're almost always getting that banner for the entirety of the game. Whereas with a horn, they didn't give that rule to the war horn. So the yeah. guy who has the horn dies, the horn's lost, and it's a 30-point upgrade in most cases. Yeah, and so like I think what happens is when you do see them, a lot of the time they're just left at the back of the board. Um, so like if you're putting a war horn like on a 10 point model let's say mm-hmm. um that's a 40 that's 40 points that's basically not yeah. fighting right and, and the other it is it's a huge buff but yeah it's expensive and the other issue is that how are you deploying your warband to allow that model to run backwards without being attacked right so that means you have to gimp whatever warband that warhorn is in to allow it to be able to run back safely and not get shot to pieces. And yeah. so, because in some missions, you can deploy all the way up to the middle of the line. So you don't want your Warhorn to be anywhere near combat, which kind of defeats the purpose of it because a Warhorn is supposed to be right up at the front and you're supposed to be able to hear the Warhorn and it's supposed to empower you. But just hiding it in the back is... It, anyways, I, I think the Warhorn is definitely huge and if we see a recurrence of the nine, the legendary nine, yeah, uh, being just big, go there too. Y- you will see that Warhorn pop up in yeah. almost every list because they desperately need that plus one courage. Yeah. But the way the mechanics work for the Warhorn right now, it doesn't... It, it, it really makes it hard to justify buying one. Okay. Uh, so moving on, we've got Father Justin and... I'm going to lean in on his number one choice because I think it is an extremely underrated model. And I could see why, because it requires you to build your army in a completely different way and pretty much throw away most of Rohan's army bonuses. And I'm talking about Eorl the Young. And he says, okay, I admit my Rohan bias here, but I have been playing him a lot recently. Uh, including at Nova last year. And part of the reason I did really well was because people really did not realize what he is capable of. For his points cost, you're getting a great value. And that's true. Eorl the Young is pretty much the equivalent of, um, I think he's two attacks or three attacks, you'll have to correct me on that. Um, And he's pretty much the equivalent of a Theoden Plus, and he's got that like freebie, um, like on a four plus uh, mighty hero benefit. And on top of that, he I think he has like a all sons of Eorl in his warband get two attacks base, or it's an aura. Again, I don't know the specifics on his character, but just being able to transform those sons of Eorl back to old edition sons of Eorl, where pretty much if you were playing Rohan, you were playing a sons of Eorl spam list. So you're pretty much hearkening back to those days, but unfortunately you're not able to bring the Urkenbrand, you're not able to bring the Gambling, you're not able to bring uh, any of those really strong Rohan heroes. So to get these really awesome troops, you're sacrificing a lot for it. Yeah, like he he's really good as an individual model and just just to confirm, like he does have three attacks base, three wounds, three might, two will, two fate. Mm-hmm. Um, so and defense seven as well. Wow, <clears throat> that's with a shield mm-hmm. uh, and throwing spears and a twelve-inch move on his horse. Um, so he's really got everything. He does have heroic strike and defense as well. So he's he's got like 
really good ab abilities and his his rule that can give him free might is is an excellent rule as well um yeah. so it's a really good model it's like you said the downside of it though is it's just that he's causing you to not have the ability to include a lot of other really good models in your list and on top of that a lot of the army bonus like like the theoden's plus one fight you're not benefiting from that anymore that's gone yeah you know so yeah so you have uh one more and then we have to give ours right right Okay, so next up was Taylor Hansen, and he gave like a whole bunch of them here. So in the interest of keeping this down to a reasonable time, uh, I'm going to focus in on a couple of them, and they're for good. And mm. so he says, uh, for good it would mainly be Fatty Bulger, who I think you might have joked about when we first asked the question. Uh, Fatty and, Bulger's amazing. I was at 10 points now. Yeah. And Lobelia. And he says that's due to being some of the lowest point warrior caddies uh, for the Hobbits. And he says he's planning on playing that army in the upcoming OSBGL season. Mm -hmm. So he's saying 10 points. So for Fatty Bulger, 10 points. Uh, allowing you to take six warriors and 15 points for Lobelia uh, for six warriors. And she has like a pretty darn good rule, which when you first read it, like when I first read it, I thought, oh, this rule is terrible. Um, and of course, I've turned the page, so I've, I don't know what the name of the rule is, but it's basically that nobody within six inches of her can use uh, stand fast. Uh -huh. So you pointed out something because it seems weird because she's got like a six courage and she has, I think, three will. So she's going to stick around. But of course, well, she's not going to inspire her her own troops to stick around because of that rule. But oh, what did you point out? Well, I pointed out that it affects both your models and your opponent's models. And because, you know, hobbits are a horde army, they're pretty much in line with the goblin horde armies out there that if you break your opponent, your opponent's going to start running very quickly, which means allying in, and the, the Hobbits have some pretty, pretty good allies, so allying in those big heroes to allow you to grind your opponent down as quickly as you possibly can will then allow Lobelia to shine, because she'll just walk up and be like, nope, no stand fast for your warriors. Yeah, like yeah. if you're playing against an orc army, like they depend on the standfast to, yeah. to stick around. That would be brutal. Yeah, you, you'd start seeing them run off the table very quickly. And you can ally in, I'm pretty sure you can ally in a Galadriel Lady of Light for the negative one courage buff. And all of a sudden, these synergies start piling up and a hobbit army with some allies, maybe yellow allies, but some allies can really hit an army last long enough that Lobelia can start grinding you down. Yeah. He also mentions uh, the warrior of Minas Tirith uh, is also, I think, underrated, uh, or he says the number one underrated model in the game. Um, he points out they have access to spears, shields, uh, the shield wall uh, special rule, which gives them uh, super high defense, mm -hmm. and they can be buffed through auras from Boromir's banner. Um, and I think we talked about this just briefly, and uh, yeah. it's probably because they get sort of bumped out of the list because, like, people tend to take the uh, what do they call the fountain, the fountain court, court guard? Yeah. Fountain court guard, yeah. 
And that's true. Like, Fountain Court Guard are so good. It's definitely the opposite of an underrated model. It's like, like it's super popular. The Warriors of Minas Tirith are nine points, spear and shield. Um, shield wall, unfortunately, is really hard to consistently pull off, so you're not always going to get that rule. It's great, I would say, mostly with shooting, because your opponent yeah. is shooting at you. You're getting the plus one D almost all the time. For two points more... You get plus one fight, plus one defense, plus one courage, because why not? Bodyguard, and yeah, four upgrades for two more points. Yeah, four really strong upgrades. It's well worth it, yeah. <laughs> so I totally understand why people don't take the guard, of the, uh, they t- don't take Warriors and Minas Tirith over the, I think they're called the guard of the fountain court. But the reality is, I predominantly play Minas Tirith and I predominantly play with Warriors of Minas Tirith. I don't play with Guard of the Fountain Court in part because I don't own the models. I'd love to play with the models. Uh, But also because Minas Tirith's armies don't win games with their infantry. They win games with their heroes. So I'd rather be spending as many points as I possibly can on the heroes and use the Warriors of Minas Tirith as literal like roadblocks. Because if I, and I've done this in another game, I, I, I threw like three warriors or four warriors of Minas Tirith into a Tariel and she couldn't kill them because her D7 and her strength four just couldn't go through them. She just couldn't get the sixes she needed. Yeah. And I was able to just stall her out while my other heroes ground down his elves. And so to me, they are speed bumps. So I'd rather just pay the cost for speed bumps and leave it at that. Yeah, so like you, you look at it that way. If you take if you take ten of them, ten warriors of Minas Tirith, you're you're kind of saving twenty points yeah. in a way, right? That you can you can spend those points on your heroes, and that's that's the way that army works, right? At, at least the most common way that you see it is you see like at least three or four big heroes charging into one of your <laughs> flanks on horse and just wrecking you while all the warriors of Minas Tirith just hold you in position. Exactly. Yeah. And, and a lot of the times, you know, the people look to uh, warriors of Minas Tirith and they say, well, you don't have the ability to, um, like you don't have the staying power from courage test because you don't, you, you don't have like bodyguard. But if you're running mono faction or you're running green allies, the army bonus for Minas Tirith is plus one courage. So where is a Minas Tirith, the courage four? You're looking at dwarf courage at this point. It's really hard to fail a courage test. Like it's very uncommon yeah. to fail a courage test unless your opponent's got those negative courage modifiers. Yeah, and, and like I, I, I tend to, t- I, I tend to play dwarf warriors with my my Kazid Doom list. Mm-hmm. Um, like I don't spam Kazid guard and iron guard as much as some people I see do. Um, and, and that's why it's just because the dwarf warrior, it's just its strength is just its defense. It's a very hard model to get rid of. And if you have a lot of them, it can really bog your opponent down. Yeah. I, I when I come across a dwarf army and the their army is predominantly defense seven, like they have very few iron guard, it is a frustration because it's like oh, this is gonna be a grind. You know, and that's where that's where dwarves excel at, and that D seven is huge against those strength yeah. two bows you want to bring to the table. Because yeah, like, well, yeah. I need sixes by fours, because yeah, that's not gonna happen. 
Okay, well let's let's get on to what we pick. That's do you, right. you want to go first, or do you want to alternate? How do you want to do alternate. this? Let's alternate. Let's alternate. Okay. Okay. You go first. Okay. So I'm going to start with an evil model. I've chosen an evil model and a good model, and my evil model is an evil troop, and I've chosen the lowly orc tracker. I don't see this model a whole lot, if at all. Uh, even in the previous edition, I didn't see it a whole lot. Uh, and I saw a lot of Mordor armies back in the day. And this is a five-point model that comes with a bow standard and has a f- you know four-plus shoot value. So now you're talking like human-level shooting for way less points. And if you really want to get spicy, you can throw a warg into the mix for not too many points more. And then you have this mobile archery contingent, plus it brings the cav option for the knockdown. It brings a lot to the table, and it's incredibly flexible. Unfortunately, the models are really hard to find, and you have to convert if you want to do the mounted option. They're not hard to find at all. You buy them online. Oh, they're online? Yeah. No. I I, I, I actually just bought a... A uh, blister of them. Well, I guess it was a few months ago. Well, now, they're, but they're, you're buying four per blister, aren't you? Isn't that three? Yeah. So I'm paying whatever the cost is for three models that cost 15 points. <laughs> like it's <laughs> it's fairly cost prohibitive to put 30 percent of the models in your armies or trackers. But the yeah. beauty about these models is that you're going to be running on them, running them to hold objectives while shooting, while the main army just runs up the table. Yeah. So uh, I like the model and. Uh, Sort of switching gears a little bit in battle companies, it's it's a really good model for the for the simple reason that it it can be a cavalry model. So yep. it it allows wargs in your faction. Like I know, um, anyway, I won't go on more about it. But uh, you've said all that needs to be said. But like I relate that model to battle company and some mm-hmm. of the evil factions that I see it there. Yeah, the more the the more you can multi-purpose your shooting the better off you are. And most people multi-purpose their shooting with, I have a spear. But with them, it's, I multi-purpose my shooting with, I have movement and I have a cav. So it's pretty big, you know. Okay, my turn? Yep. Okay, so I'm the exact opposite of you. I also have a warrior and a hero. Um, But my warrior is good. And I've talked about this model before and how much I really like it. And it is the Dwarf Ranger. And you just don't see people play with it. No, you Um, don't. And I think mostly it's because of the previous edition. It was it was way too expensive, and it wasn't actually the model that was way too expensive. It was its upgrades: three points for a bow or three points for uh, throwing axes, both of which have been reduced to one point now. Yeah. And uh, it did go up one point, uh, but still you're saving. And I think it's such a good model. It's just so different than the rest of the dwarf army, mm-hmm. like. Kaza, and we're talking about Kazadum here, uh, and, and the strength of Kazadum is actually defense. Yeah, kind of a kind of a boring strength is just defense. But um, this model here, it, it's only defense five. But I say only defense five. Defense five is one of those numbers that it's a threshold number. Mm-hmm. Defense four is terrible. Defense five is reasonably good. Mm-hmm. Defense seven is incredibly good. Yeah. Right. So if you have defense five, you're doing okay. Actually, it's yeah. it's not bad. Now they don't they don't get shields. So that that's really the two downsides to that model. No access to shields and defense five. But mm-hmm. everything else about that model is incredible. I think, 
It's got defense, or it's got a fight four. It's got a shoot of three. And if you're going to take um, a dwarf ranger, you're always going to take a throwing axe with it, no matter yeah. what else it has. Um, because giving that model a throwing axe gives you such a huge amount of offensive potential in the army. Yeah. And like I've been running, uh, or I haven't actually really run maybe only once an entire army of these guys, but I've been building lists <laughs> um, <laughs> with, with these guys. And I, I find that they synergize really well with the, the new profile of uh, Balan, who Ooh, I mentioned yeah. in before was one of my my favorite models mm -hmm. and that is because of his uh is it long beard i think it's long beard special rule and that's where he's able to use his will to re-roll priority oh, so yeah, yeah. if you have an entire army armed with throwing weapons that is like a huge <laughs> rule for you you don't want to uh, lose you don't, like as a player oh. playing against you i wouldn't want to lose priority because it's a lot of strength three throwing yeah. weapons coming at me at three oh, plus yeah. to hit yeah, and like you've mentioned before, how um, if you spend you know twelve points or on twelve bows or whatever, it's always going to give you return on investment. Mm -hmm. Well, it's this, it's the same thing with with these throwing weapons because they're strength three oh my God, for yeah. one point, and they're being used by a model with a shoot of three. And when you're charging into combat, there's no negative on that. Yeah. So it's well, the, like the, the beautiful part about dwarves and um, you know their their five inch movement is that people always are like, yes, you have five inch movement. That means you have to move towards me. That means if I stay six inches out, you're I'm going to be able to charge you and react to you, even though it's your priority. But when it comes to a dwarf ranger army, it's like I don't have to move towards you. I'm just going to shoot you from here. I'll yep. force you to charge me. So I, I'm, I'm now forcing you to play my game instead of you wanting to play your game. Yeah, it's definitely an army that if you're if you're going to go this route, you definitely take max bows. Yeah. Definitely take max bows. You make sure the other guy has to move towards you. And then when he gets there, he's in for a big surprise. He's mm -hmm. going to have a few volleys of throwing axes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's my model. That's I like my, it. I like my it. warrior. All right, so my second choice is a hero and it's a good hero and it's the model that nobody now takes because of Huron and that is Faramir that is Faramir captain of Gondor and the reason why no one takes Faramir is because Huron is cheaper and he's more offensive but the reason why I like Faramir is because one he's just so much more flexible he is he's got the courage six so he doesn't have to really rely upon the fearlessness of Aragorn, so he can have his sort of independence. Two, he brings that three, three, two to the table, three might, three will, and two fate, mm -hmm. versus Huron, who only has three, one, one. So he's a, a little more resilient when it comes to spells. He's a little more resilient when it comes to failing that critical uh, stand fast or that critical courage test. He still gets the lance, so on the charge, he's still able to be as offensive as Huron is. Um, but the thing that I love about him the most is, one, he's got heroic defense. 
And I, I cannot I cannot overstate just how important having a hero with heroic defense is because that immediately gives you that option to roadblock a big nasty. You know, you're looking at someone like, let's say, an, your opponent's got an Aragorn King Alistar running down your throat and you just charge a Faramir in there and you go, heroic defense. And you just keep heroic defense. And yeah. all of a sudden, you can block an Aragorn for three turns. And when your 105, 110-point model is stalling a 240-point model for three turns of combat, you're yeah, generally getting a, a, yeah. You're getting, getting huge, a you're getting huge bang for your buck there. Yeah. Yeah, and I was just about to jump in with that three-turn thing. Because if you're going to do uh, heroic defense for two turns and maybe survive a third turn as well against a big hero like a you know like you even we talked about Glorfindel like mm. even against a guy like that it's crippling to the other guy's army because Absolutely. in order for a hero like that to make back his points he's got to be killing like a handful of models every turn mm-hmm. so you know and most games what's the average length of a game like between six and eight turns maybe I would say that by the time combat is hit, like lines clash, I would definitely say by by four or five turns, you have clearly a definitive person on top. And unless their dice swing in an atrocious way, you're going to continue winning. So if you can stall a big hero for those first three critical turns, yeah. like you are essentially stopping like an Aragorn King LSR from heroic combating through potentially 12 models, right? That's 12 yep. more models you are keeping on the table in exchange for a Faramir. Oh, yeah. Yep. You know? Yeah, definitely know the value of uh, heroic defense after playing with um, Gorolf Ironhide. Mm-hmm. Holy mackerel. That guy Free is ridiculous. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. He's yeah. not underrated, I'll tell you that. Nope. So what about you? What is your chosen hero? Uh, okay, my chosen hero, and thank you for reminding me of this model that I love to take in my Angmar army, and that's the Wild Warg Chieftain. I knew you'd forget. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh my god, I don't have a hero, and you said, well, why don't you pick this one? You always play with it. Um, you just don't see people take this model. And no. I, th- I think it's just because there's so many tasty treats in Angmar. Angmar is a heavy hero army. There's a yeah, lot of good that, ones. Yeah, like people just people just they don't overlook them. There's just more things, more popular choices, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this model is absolutely fantastic. And and whenever I take an Angmar list, it's basically one of the reasons why I play Angmar because you know I, I don't generally use a shade. I don't mm-hmm. have my Berdur painted. You know, so I was like, okay, well, why are you playing Angmar? Why don't you play Mordor? Mm-hmm. Like, they're better. They have more stuff and all the stuff that Angmar has, except for, um, what's that one? Uh, spell casting, paralyzing. Oh, thing. using with the barrel white. <laughs> yeah. Um, they also have specters. Yo, no knock them specters. They're amazing in Angmar. Yeah, yeah. So it's like barrel whites and specters are kind of like why I play um, with Angmar, aside from the wild war chieftain mm-hmm. and like the the big downer to the wild war chieftain is his pack lord special rule yeah so it's like his his might like his heroics only affect wargs so it's like okay that is that is terrible um but 
if you actually field him with some wargs, mm-hmm. it's suddenly not that terrible because he can he can use them. Now he doesn't count as a cavalry model, so that's a drawback. But like if you're taking this model, you're probably going to be taking warg riders and wargs. It's like I, whenever I play them, I always take a lot of warg riders, wargs, wild warg chieftain, orc captain mounted on warg. So you have a very like mobile contingent, mm-hmm. and even though he's not a cavalry model, so he doesn't get knocked down, you just get you bring in a warg rider into the fight with him. Mm-hmm. So when when you win the fight, um, because he's got three attacks and he's fight five you knock the enemy model down because you have a cavalry model in the fight with you mm-hmm. and then once you have a model down he's got six strength six attacks on Oof. you know things just aren't going to survive that there's a there's an interesting thought i actually an interesting tactic i just thought of um and that's called layered um layered moving and this used to be just when you had red alliance right and, and that would be, I call a heroic move with one section of my army, and the other section doesn't benefit from it. So I'll charge in, and then you'll move your models, because you almost always have a counter-heroic move going, and then I will move my second batch of models into combat with you. And you're able to, because of the Wild Bark Chieftain doesn't affect anyone but wargs, you're still able to do that. You're able to go, I'm going to charge my Wild Bark Chieftain plus the wargs into combat. Then my opponent's going to wrap me. Then I'm going to countercharge with the warg riders. And right. all of a sudden it's like, now I've pincered you. And you're able to have that yeah, yeah. layered move because now your opponent's like, yep. do I wrap or do I accept the fact that his wild war, his war riders are going to roll over me? Right? Yeah. It, I don't know. I, I really love that model. And one of the other things I didn't mention about the model too was, you know, cavalry heroes are so big in the game now. Um, we've talked about, about them quite a bit. But the weakness of them, of course, is they get dismounted and then they're, they're infantry. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing about this model is you can knock it over all you want, but it never loses its 10-inch move. That's right. Never goes away. Never goes away. So there you go. <laughs> That's my hero. Alrighty, I like it. Okay, so is that it? Have you given both ears? Yeah, you have. Okay, so that's it for all that is gold does not glitter. So let us move on to the next segment. Which is? Which is nothing. Which is nothing, because we don't have it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so why don't we move on to the conclusion then? I don't have anything ready. You don't have anything ready for the conclusion? Nope. And the last time I didn't even do anything. I just said, I thanks, know. see you later. Yeah, so disappointed <laughs> by that. So, it's too much pressure, man. Oh can't take the pressure. God. This is our conclusion right now, is us arguing about how you can't hold the pressure. <laughs> 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 well, this definitely concludes the episode. Uh, I would love to throw out some sort of quote or sonnet or poem that's Middle Earth related. But, you know, the, the 10 seconds it takes to read that, there's a lot of extra work to find it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it takes, it, it literally takes like 10 or 20 seconds to read it and like two to three hours to find the right yeah. passage. Yeah. Who knows, maybe I'll surprise you and I'll tag something on at the very end. All right, good. I, I, I'm looking forward to it or not. I don't know which. <laughs> All right, so I think that's that's it for us. This is episode six? Six. 
Holy yeah. cow. And look, at, we already have our we already have another episode planned cuz we have the last of the the mental stuff. Yeah. We got another episode planned for talking about TOing in Canadian Shire. We got another episode somewhat planned for um the fantasy fellowship stuff. That's right. Look at this. It's we got all kinds of stuff in in the works. Even I started working on yet another episode today that I will not reveal yet oh. at this time. I don't even know it. Yeah. Yeah, so no, we, we've got easily enough content to push us to episode 10, if not 11. Uh, and now we haven't even stepped into talking about uh, overarching tactics and strategies and types of army lists and that kind of thing, which will come down in the future. Um, yeah. But we're, you know, we're probably, you know, Probably not going to get into army list discussion like individual armies, but we'll talk more of like a high. No, I, I, in all honesty, I don't think we really need to do that anyway. There are, you know, there are so many uh, YouTube channels and podcasts now that like some of them specialize on on doing that, and mm-hmm. like that that's their primary format. Like I don't mm-hmm. think we really need to get into army list building. Um, yeah, we are going to be talking about something that's a little more unique and flavorful, but and that will come in time. We're not going to reveal all our secrets all at once. All right, sounds good. Well, thanks everybody for listening to this episode, and we will see you again on the next episode of North of the Shire.